Rachel Powell, also known as the Pink Hat Lady, is about to begin a five-year prison sentence for her role in the January 6 attack on the U.S. Capitol. She's a mom of eight and grandmother of six, and she spent most of the last three years under home detention in rural Pennsylvania. Is this what you expected from an insurrectionist, a terrorist? How do I have time to plan an insurrection when my life is busy like this? Making pie, raising babies. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. Wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win, she lost. On this day after the New Hampshire primaries, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. There you just heard the voices of the last two remaining GOP presidential candidates, former Ambassador Nikki Haley and the president she once served, Donald Trump. Trump took more than 54 percent of the vote yesterday to Haley's 43.2 percent, and that victory puts him a big step closer to securing the Republican nomination. For more on what the results might tell us about where this election is headed, we are joined now by Republican pollster and strategist Sarah Longwell, who led Republican voters against Trump in 2020. She's also publisher of the center-right news and opinion website, The Bulwark. Sarah Longwell, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. So, is there, I mean, look, I hate to start there, but I am going to start there. Is this race to secure the GOP nomination essentially over? It is. And look, Nikki Haley, she overperformed expectations last night, but it was not nearly enough to do something that was going to fundamentally change the structure of this race. She was down in many of the late breaking polls by 20 percent or more to Donald Trump. And it looks like she's going to come in maybe around 11 percent. The thing about New Hampshire is that undeclared and even uh, so some of them can be Democrats as long as they are you know, registered as undeclared, they can pull a Republican ballot. And last night, almost half of the people who voted were in that undeclared category. Other states just don't look like that. And so if you if you separate out just Republicans you know, how they feel about the election being stolen. Uh, obviously, many, many more of them believe that it was. You know, the Republicans broke 74 percent for Trump. Um, and and they're, it's, it's, it's just not going to look like that in other states. And I know that she, she was talking last night in her victory speech about going into her sweet South Carolina. But I don't think South Carolina is going to be very sweet for Nikki Haley. Um, you know, she hasn't received many endorsements there from her old home state. Mm. Uh, and Donald Trump is leading by, I think, at least 30 percent in the polls. And so she's got a really tough decision to make, uh, which is either keep this going. And no doubt there's going to be a lot of people who want her to. There's going to be money there to keep going uh, or she's got to go into her home state and probably uh, get her clock cleaned uh, by Donald Trump. And I think that just like Ron DeSantis sort of took a beat, went home, thought about it, and then dropped out, um, I wouldn't be surprised if if that's what happened with her. And I say this as somebody who desperately wants an alternative to Donald Trump and who thought Nikki Haley would be the best of all available options to be that alternative. Why did you think that? Uh, I mean, she... The reason that I like her is the reason that Republican primary voters don't like her, which is that she looks like a Republican from the pre-Trump days, somebody who still cared about 
you know, live in limited government, free markets, American leadership in the world. She looks like a responsible politician. She talks about supporting Ukraine. Um, she's not uh, as much as she has played a cynical game and kowtowing to Donald Trump. She is not fundamentally a MAGA sort of politician or movement person. Um, but I also know because I do focus groups with voters all the time that that's not what Republican voters want anymore. In fact, they're incredibly distrustful of politicians who seem like establishment politicians or old school Republicans. That's not who they want. Let's, can we, so you talked a little bit about the fact that New Hampshire is unique in the sense that independents can kind of you know, pick their ballot and, and, and independents were probably more attracted to Haley than sort of uh, sort of mainstream or committed Republicans. I did want to ask about gender. I mean, the exit polls showed that, you know, men liked Trump more than women, but a lot of women did like Trump in New Hampshire. And I'm just interested in how you think the, the what does that, does that tell us anything going forward? You know, this has been true all along. I think there's a pretty big narrative that women are what are going to take Trump down or they're the ones who are opposed to Trump. And that is true broadly when you include sort of Democrat and independent women. But when you look more at Republican women, they are on board with Trump. In fact, I've, I, like I said, I do these focus groups. And one of the things that I heard when I would ask about Nikki Haley is how many women who were Republicans said that they didn't think a woman should be president. Um, I was actually quite surprised by this. I'm not surprised that much anymore by what I hear from voters, but I was surprised at how many people said that they didn't think a woman should be president among these two-time Trump voters. Oh, that's fascinating. And also, you know, look, South Carolina has among the lowest percentage of women in elected office in the country, you know, interestingly enough. So, I mean, it, interesting that she's kind of a unicorn there. Sarah, I'm going to ask you to to stand by and I'm going to bring in NPR political correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben, who has been reporting in New Hampshire. She's back here in a slightly warmer clime here <laughs> in, in the studio with us. Danielle, what, what's uh, struck you about what you saw in New Hampshire and what you've heard today? Uh, I mean, just listening to Sarah here, she's absolutely right. Right about women. I was also looking at the difference between the exit polls in New Hampshire and the entrance polls in Iowa. And what one thing you really noticed is that in New Hampshire, yes, Haley did better among women than she did among men. She did much better among women than she did among men. But in Iowa, the gender gap just isn't there nearly to that degree, which leads me to make the educated guess that it's probably not ne not necessarily Republican women in New Hampshire that were breaking for Haley. It was probably, I would bet, independent women. The meaningful breakdowns you see are, they tend to be about married versus unmarried, college educated versus not college educated, especially uh, about income. So honestly, there are a lot more meaningful ways you can break things down by gender. Okay, look, very briefly, I want to ask both of you this. It seems that the uh, the Biden administration and its surrogates are going to lean very heavily on abortion rights going forward. And I'm interested in how you think that that will cut because we have seen Republican women cross over to support, uh, uh, you know, to oppose uh, more restrictive abortion rights, uh, more restrictive measures against abortion in some places. So, Danielle, briefly, your take on how that's going to play. And then, Sarah, I want to hear from you on that. I think it could sway independent and suburban women as far as Republican women I am not I am honestly not really sure that that would sway them. People tend to be so party uh, loyal right now. OK, Sarah, Long, what do you think about that? Yeah. So mainly when you see these overwhelming majorities voting for abortion rights, they tend to be disaggregated from general elections. Right. They're on a ballot by themselves. And then there you get lots of Republican women voting for them. But if you give them Trump, one of the things people forget about Trump is lots of these voters believe he's a social moderate. They do not think that he will outlaw abortion. 
Oh. That is Sarah Longwell, Republican pollster and strategist, and our NPR political correspondent, Daniel Kurtzleben. Thank you both. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. But they do get benefits. The benefit basically is what? The main thing they get from it is a giant ego trip. Uh-huh. All right. Now, when a person has to give up what builds their ego and their incentive, you're asking a lot of them because white people have been trained under the system of white supremacy that your whole system of logic, your whole system of egoism, your whole system of self-worth is based on looking at dark people and saying that you are master over them. Now, when you take that away, like Robert Rourke said uh, years ago, that when you take something away from a people, you have to replace it with something to bear. That's the law of compensation, too. Uh-huh. All right? Now, when you take that away from white people, they began to get sluggish and confused. They began to do things like uh, shoot each other and all like that. We're going to spend the next six minutes or so hearing a story about suicide in Wyoming, a state that has consistently had the nation's highest suicide rate. Wyoming also has some of the highest gun ownership rates, but until recently, it was taboo to draw a link between them. Here's NPR's Kirk Sigler. Wyoming is the nation's least populous state, and even just driving its snowy highways can sometimes feel lonely. Mama A friend here once half-joked that the reason locals aren't always friendly the first time you meet them is because every time they go to open their front door or get out of their car, their face twists into a scowl. They're bracing for the constant wind. Hits you like a gale force. You've got to be tough to live here, and there's a certain pride in that. Wyoming still feels a bit like the western frontier. Most people own guns for hunting or because it might take the sheriff more than an hour to get to your place if there's a problem. Johnny Tafoya thinks there are a lot of misperceptions about gun culture. He's behind the counter at Frontier Arms and Supply, one of a half dozen mom-and-pop gun shops here in Cheyenne. It's Wyoming's largest city, population 65,000. You know, this is a fun thing to be doing to where most people don't understand that side of it. They just see the mayhem or the destruction that it causes. This stuff really feeds families and and is a fun, enjoyable sport. But at the same time, there's now an openness about something that was rarely talked about even 10 years ago. That's the connection between all the guns and Wyoming's perennially high suicide rate. Is there times where situations to where we felt that we aren't going to sell firearms? 100%. You know what I mean? Are there times where we've turned people away from buying firearms? Absolutely. Tafoya and his co-worker Art Huckfeld there are often the first line of defense. Guns are used in 80% of all suicides here in Laramie County, compared to just over 50% nationally. States with high gun ownership rates tend to have much higher suicide rates. This is something B.J. Ayers knows all too well. The Cheyenne mother lost two sons to suicide more than a decade ago. Both shot themselves. Ayers, who's 62 and works as an insurance agent, went on to start a suicide prevention foundation. It's very disheartening when we stay up there. You know, We don't want to be first place in this. Even though the suicide rate has remained high, Ayers is at least encouraged that Wyomingites are finally talking openly about keeping guns away from people in that moment of crisis. Unlike, say, intentional drug overdoses, suicide by firearm is almost always lethal. I still think about the statement that our surviving son used one time and it really stuck with me. 
He said, you know, my brothers didn't want to die. They didn't want their life to be over. They just wanted that period in their life to be over. On the coasts, the reflexive response to gun violence is to try to restrict access. But gun control in conservative Wyoming is a non-starter. So here, they talk about creating time and space between a person in crisis and their gun. Head southwest toward Maxwell Avenue, then turn right onto Maxwell Avenue. Lauren Sinclair with the Department of Veterans Affairs logs hundreds of miles a week in her hybrid minivan, crisscrossing southern Wyoming, pushing mental health awareness. So I'm from the VA over here in Cheyenne. Today she's visiting gun shops to talk about the benefits of safe storage, where a customer can bring guns in and leave them temporarily. It's an alternative to red flag laws that have been effective in blue states, including next door in Colorado, where a judge can temporarily remove guns during a mental health crisis. Uh, maybe their teenager was in crisis, or if they themselves were just saying, hey, I'm not in the right space to have my firearm at home with me right now, can you hold that? Sinclair is pleased to learn this shop is already offering safe storage, no questions asked. There's still a stigma around mental health with some gun owners. Once you start talking about those difficulties and you're a firearm owner, there's that fear that the next follow-up is going to be, we need you to surrender your firearms. Sinclair lost her mom to suicide by firearm, and she says for too long, prevention and guns were completely siloed from one another in Wyoming. And that's finally changing. I don't think it's a non-starter to talk about. I think that's the difference than 10 years ago is that as you experience from our interaction in there, there was no hesitancy in saying, oh yeah, if they need a secure place to store their firearm, we can do that. It's not yet clear how many gun shops are offering safe storage in Wyoming, but it's now more common for shop employees to hand out safety locks with purchases and to have taken QPR classes, question, persuade, refer. On the outskirts of the windswept town of Laramie is Gold Spur Outfitters, a specialty gun retailer popular with local college kids. Behind the store and warehouse floor is a huge metal vault. And this is our secure room. It's kind of our, our safe, solid door. Co-owner Lloyd Baker incorporated safe storage into his business model when he opened three years ago after seeing so many fellow veterans die by suicide. There's that one firearm on the end, the box there. Baker is working the with the new Firearms Research Center at the University of Wyoming to turn this into a model statewide. He's frustrated with what he sees as the gridlock in American politics. Liberals default to gun control and conservatives just say no to anything. We can provide tools to the people who do suicide prevention and say, hey, there's other options than going through state or federal government to try to fix a, a local problem. Maybe we can do something locally. And still, Wyoming continues to rank at or near the top when it comes to suicide rates. It's an uphill battle, prevention workers say, especially since the state hasn't expanded Medicaid, which increases mental health care funding. Yet people like B.J. Ayers, the mother who lost her two sons to suicide, are steadfast. She'll keep fighting. I mean, at what point do we say enough is enough? You know, we, we need to talk about it. We need to get the resources out to the people that are in crisis. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, you can call or text three numbers, 988. 
988. Just those numbers, nothing else. 988. And that gets you to the suicide and crisis lifeline. Your whole system of egoism, your whole system of self-worth is based on looking at dark people and saying that you are master over them. Now, when you take that away from white people, they begin to get sluggish and confused. They begin to do things like uh, shoot each other and all like that. Alcohol is one of the leading causes of preventable deaths in the U.S. Every year, more people die of alcohol-related causes than drug overdoses. But problems with alcohol often go overlooked. William Brangham looks at how this is affecting the western part of the country and one state in particular. While alcohol is problematic everywhere, Colorado has one of the highest rates of alcohol-related deaths in the country. Drinking deaths in the state spiked 60 percent between 2018 and 2021. In 2022, more than 1,500 people in the state died from excessive drinking, a slight decline from earlier, but that is still 50 percent above pre-pandemic levels. When you also take into account deaths from chronic long-term conditions related to alcohol, the death toll doubles, a number that far exceeds the deaths from opioids. But as the Denver Post reported in a new four-part series, alcohol has not been treated with the same urgency as opioids. That series is called Colorado's Quiet Killer, and reporter Meg Wingutter joins me now. Meg, thank you so much for being here. Um, your series is titled the, the Quiet Killer. Why do you refer to it as quiet? It's quiet in the sense that it hasn't generated much attention. You know, we hear about the number of people who are dying of opioids, which, of course, is a massive killer that we need to pay attention to. But there's not really the awareness that alcohol can also be deadly. When I was writing this series and interviewing people, other than people who specifically study alcohol, there was just not really this awareness that the death toll could be anything comparable because, well, I mean, it's not something people talk about very much. Most many people would really rather not admit if excessive drinking was what killed their loved one. So we just don't have the conversation. When we talk about categorizing deaths from alcohol, can you break those down for us? Are we talking about accidents where people are intoxicated? Is this is this chronic conditions? What What are these deaths? I'm glad you asked that because when I was interviewing people, often what would come up is they would assume that this was a lot of people dying in crashes or young people drinking themselves to death in one night. But what it is mostly is longer term conditions, a lot of liver disease, some cancers, some heart condition, deaths by suicide where people were intoxicated at the time, which makes you more impulsive, more likely to follow through in uh, in suicide if you were having those thoughts. So it, it does look different than what people expect. Accidents are a problem, but they're not the biggest source of the problem. Are there things that public health experts told you might help for the state to do to help bring these deaths down? Well, there's no one magic thing that if we do this, it will bring make a huge impact on deaths. But there are a lot of small things that can nudge people. When alcohol taxes go up, people tend to somewhat reduce their, um, their consumption. When alcohol is not as convenient, 
people also will tend to drink a little bit less. There are cultural things, you know, trying to give people alternatives and kind of normalize events where drinking isn't at the center of it. Now, none of those is going to completely fix the problem, but they each kind of give people a nudge toward reducing their consumption, which over time adds up to to fewer people developing these chronic conditions. I mean, alcohol, as your reporting shows, is so ingrained in our culture, even though we are in the middle of dry January. I mean, it, it's kind of notable that we even have have a month where we try to drink less as a culture. Were you surprised overall by the things that you found in your series? Yes, I I had actually just kind of stumbled across these numbers on alcohol-related deaths and looked at those, and that seemed high, compared it to the overdoses. But as I started talking to people more about the number of conditions that it's involved in, it it makes sense. The odds an average drinker will die from alcohol are much lower than the odds an average illicit fentanyl user will die from the substance they're using. But so many people drink that it then adds up to this very large toll. Um, And it is uncomfortable to talk about in a way that illicit drugs are not, because so many of us enjoy having a having a drink and don't necessarily want to hear that it could be a problem. All right. That is Meg Wingutter of the Denver Post. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you for having me. I'm getting in the elevator and these two high school white boys tried to get on with me. And I just dove off. I said, y'all ain't killing me. I am scared of young white boys. If you white and under 21, I am running for the hill. What the hell is wrong with these white kids shooting up the school? Jury selection is scheduled to begin today in a Michigan case that could set a precedent over whether a parent can be held criminally responsible for the actions of their child. About two years ago, a student at Oxford High School in Michigan opened fire. Here are some numbers that define this incident. The student was 15 years old. He killed four fellow students. He wounded six other students and one teacher. The teenager was charged, and so were his parents, with four counts each of involuntary manslaughter. WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter has been following the case. Quinn, the shooter in this case, pleaded guilty. He was sentenced uh, recently to life without parole. So why did prosecutors charge his parents as well? Well, the parents are Jennifer and James Crumbly, and they're being tried separately. Jennifer's trial is first. But they both face, as you mentioned, charges of involuntary manslaughter. In essence, prosecutors say the Crumblies could have stopped the massacre if they had taken certain steps a reasonable person would have done. Uh, The prosecution alleges the Crumblies were grossly negligent by ignoring their son's pleas for mental health counseling and instead buying him a handgun as an early Christmas present. The Crumblies also refused to take their son home from Oxford High the day of the murders, even after school officials said they found drawings he'd made of a person shot by the same kind of gun they'd gifted him, with phrases like, help me, and blood everywhere. The prosecution says the Crumblies did not even mention their son might have access to a gun, let alone request that the school check to see if he had it with them. All right, so the Crumblies are being accused of a lot. Uh, How are they responding? Defense attorneys argue the Crumblies' son pulled the trigger, not the parents'. And the Crumblies had no way of knowing that he planned a mass shooting. 
And they say evidence that their son wanted mental help comes from text messages to his friend, not something that the parents would have seen. But isn't one of the key arguments from prosecutors is that access to the weapon used during the shooting? It's all about that. Yeah, the prosecution claims the Crumbleys did not adequately secure the gun, so their son could not gain access to it. But when the son, Ethan Crumbley, pleaded guilty to the killings in 2022, prosecutors specifically questioned him about that. Is it true on November the 30th, 2021, when you obtained the firearm, it was not kept in a locked container or a safe? Yes, it was not locked. Crumbly may not make that assertion publicly again, however. His court-appointed attorneys appealed his life without parole sentence and advised him not to testify in either of his parents' trials. Now, we're hearing from legal experts to say this case could actually set a national precedent in what way? Well, typically parents are not charged. Uh, this case, however, involves a mass school shooting and severe charges of involuntary manslaughter. We did see another instance of a parent being charged in Illinois, where last year a father pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges after his son killed people during a Fourth of July parade. That case revolved around how the son obtained a license for a gun, not the kind of involuntary manslaughter charges made against the Crumbleys. One other thing, Quinn, the Crumbly parents, they're being tried separately. Why separately? Because the couple requested it. They had presented a united front until recently. And they waited several days initially before turning themselves into the authorities. Now their attorneys argue in court filings that new evidence has come to light that would pit one parent against the other. And if either is convicted, they could face a maximum of 15 years in prison. That's Quinn Kleinfelter from WDET in Detroit. Quinn, thank you. You're welcome. Or in some cases, the water's not rising, but the prices are rising in the area where they are. And they can no longer stay there because they can't afford to be where they are. So they raise the prices on everything. They foreclose on the house that a person is in. That person has got to move. Because they have found that when people are constantly moving, they are dislocated. And they are angry and they are frustrated. And they can't get their bearings. They can be almost driven insane. Spiking rents have caused a lot of pain for people the last few years. Now, a new study finds housing is unaffordable for half of all renters. That is a record high. And even a softening market won't be much help for many. Here's NPR's Jennifer Ludden. Over the past two years, Genuine Campbell was shocked at how rent for her two-bedroom apartment in Philadelphia just kept going up from 1300 a month to 1600 She's a single mom of four, and while this was happening, her hours as a hotel valet were getting cut. Add in utility costs plus inflation, and every month was a wrenching decision. All right, do you want to pay the bills and then give half the rent, or do you want to try to do the whole rent and then be back on bills? It's so hard. It's so hard. Campbell says the area is not even safe enough for her kids to play outside, but the rents are way out of line with what she can make. These jobs are not paying that much. You have to work in like maybe a hospital or police officer or something, you know, well over just to keep up with the rent. In fact, a newly released study from Harvard University finds more such households and lots of others also struggle to pay rent, even when people are working full time. We actually saw increases across every single income category that we look at, which sort of surprised us. Whitney Ergood O'Bricky is with Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. She says in 2022, a record half of all renters paid more than 30 percent of their income for rent and utilities. For a large chunk, it was more than 50 percent. Middle income renters were hit especially hard. 
These days, she says, traditional trade-offs are no guarantee of cheaper rent. So you might not be living in as good of a neighborhood. You might be commuting farther. You might be sacrificing the quality of your school system to try to live in affordable housing. And still, many can't afford where they live. Ergut Obricki says for a quarter of all renters, 600 a month is the most they can comfortably spend. But in the past decade, the U.S. has lost millions of cheaper places, including over half a million just since 2019. There is a lot of badly needed new construction, but those apartments are mostly at the high end. That's not going to help people like Genuine Campbell, who made a change this month. It was just too much. So I was like, all right, well, maybe I need to just start fresh new year. Her family has moved in with friends, and she's making a bit more as a driver with Lyft. She's also started looking for a cheaper place with a rent of 1000 to 1100 a month. Like a, you're dreaming of a fairy tale. But I'm going to try to find something that I can handle and I can manage. She hopes that dream is not impossible. Jennifer Lutton, NPR News. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Last week, the city of St. Louis brought a lawsuit against six Missouri residents who the city says are running a massive illegal rooming house operation that involves 39 properties across at least nine South City neighborhoods. Riverfront Times reporter Ryan Kroll has been investigating the operation and what tenants are facing as the buildings get cleared out. He joins us now to talk about his coverage. Ryan, so good to have you back again. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about the basics of this case, this story. Who is at the center of this, these six people? Sure. So the lawsuit, which was filed last week, was against um, Dara Doherty uh, and some of her family members, as well as a number of LLCs that they run. Uh, And these individuals, basically, the lawsuit alleges, um, have for a number of years now been uh, the owners of condemned houses, 39 condemned houses at least, throughout the city that they've then uh, rented out sort of in the they've rented out individual rooms in these houses to individuals. Um, and, you know, the houses are condemned, so they're not legally um, allowed to be used as rental properties or they're not even supposed to have people living in them. Uh, yet they seem to be generating quite a bit of income for these individuals to the tune of about $40,000 a month, mm-hmm. um, allegedly. Right. And which neighborhoods are we talking about? Yeah, quite a few. Virtually like the whole kind of almost every neighborhood in South City uh, were um, Tower Grove East, Gravoy Park, uh, The Patch, Crondelet. Um, let's see what else. The um, uh, Soulard, Benton Park, Benton Park West. Uh, I know I'm leaving off a few, but it's really uh, spans a pretty wide swath of South City. Mm-hmm. And there are operations being illegal. You've mentioned that they're they're condemned. I mean, is there something about renting out rooms in that way that is, you know, shady or not lawful or is it primarily about the the condemned nature of these buildings? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm so glad you asked that. Um my understanding is that um rooming houses, you know, situations where a, a landlord rents out individual rooms in a house is not strictly illegal in the city of St. Louis. However, in order to be allowed to do that, 
uh, you would have to go through the plat and petition process, which means you need to collect signatures from people in the neighborhood, et cetera. That's my understanding, at least. Um, and that's going to be, I think, um, you know, it, it's hard enough to do that if you're just trying to get like a liquor license or something like that. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a really hard thing to do in order to run a rooming house. And that was almost certainly not happening in this case. Mm-hmm. And just to make a clarification, Dara Darty and her associates, they own buildings that are not all condemned but there are many of them that are. Uh, my understanding is, so the lawsuit by the city, I believe, references 39 properties, and almost all, if uh, if not all, of those are condemned. Yeah. Okay. Now, someone who's had a close view on this, speaking of neighborhoods, is Joe Goodman. Joe lives in Tower Grove East on Virginia Avenue near one of the rental properties. Joe, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell us about the condition of the property that you are nearest to? Right. Um, I live, I share an alleyway with one of the condemned properties. I would think it's probably one of the more dilapidated buildings that she probably owns. But she also owns uh, another house, four houses south of me, that's habitable and not condemned. So Mm. I get to see both sides, you know, both kinds of operations she's running. Yeah. And... Who lives at each of these buildings? Okay, so the dilapidated building that's condemned, uh, these people, you know, they're probably just going through a lot in their life. They're down on their luck. I think a lot of them would have been homeless if they weren't living in one of Dara's properties, houses. Um, The other property, um, there's like five people that live there. They're all working. They Mm -hmm. go to work every day. There's five or six at any time. The alley, the, the house in my alleyway, that's... Condemned, or is any time between seven and nine people living there? Okay, uh, wow. you know, crammed in, uh, living in the basement, and several, many of the rooms in the house. Yeah, yeah. And you are here not as a as a nimbyist, right? Uh, you know, you had several interactions with one person in particular, Larry. named Larry, yeah. right? And he lived at the condemned property until a few months ago. What was notable, Joe, about your interactions with him? Uh, super nice guy, um, up at dawn, working all day until the sun went down. Um, I talked to him almost every day that I I work at the uh, community garden at the end of my street, so I, I saw him often every day I went to the community garden. And um, nice guy, collects cans in the alleyways, um, just a hard worker, and not sure where he's gone off to now. Yeah. Since, uh, his building was condemned about four months ago before the city started their civil process against Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, Ryan, you have been covering this story, and one of the things that really stood out is that the people who are living in these rooms, they have so few options. What is it that you heard from them about why they were, I'm going to use the word choosing um, very consciously here, why were they choosing to live in these rooms and under these conditions. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. Um, yeah, for speaking very generally, these were folks who had, you know, some money coming in, um, either through assistance or through through jobs, that sort of thing. But for whatever reason, they didn't have the resources to um, live in a, a place that had, you know, uh, a place that you would hope someone, you know, could live in, a place with running water, heat, air conditioning that's safe, for instance. So they were kind of in this gap where 
um, the, the folks running this operation were clearly able to, you know, extract some amount of rent from them. But they were, for the most part, in this spot where it was either I'm going to be living out on the streets or I can live have a roof over my head, a very subpar, substandard roof. Um, and they kind of had, you know, this choice between two bad options. And yet to use the to be very conscious of how we're using the word choose. Yes, they were choosing um, the, what they probably saw as the less or the least of two bad choices. Mm-hmm. And in your interactions, Joe, with Dara, um, what was it that stood out? I mean, was she was she doing what she was doing out of a sense of like a goodwill? Oh no, it's it was pretty obvious she was running a criminal um, operation. Uh, she never went into the property. She always sent in other people to check in on the residents, collect uh, rent. I'm not quite sure uh, how the operation worked. I only interacted with her in the alleyway and always kind of felt uncomfortable when she was around. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, appreciate you uh, mentioning that I'm not a NIMBY because our neighbors set up a uh, food pantry for the boarding house and other people in the neighborhood as well as kind of an outreach and just want to make sure that they were – they were eating and had a cl- we had a uh, clothes rack in mm-hmm. wintertime for them as well. Right. So. And were there any efforts to raise the alarm around what you and maybe other neighbors were observing? Yeah. Um, had a lot of neighbors that had called the city multiple times. Um, I called the aldermen and the board of the president last summer when their air conditioning was taken out of the house. They had two wall units. Then Dara had come by and taken them out. This summer? Last summer during Last the summer. heat wave. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I mean, you, you've you been doing this investigation. You know, how was it that this situation was even possible? And is that partly how your investigation began? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there definitely seems to be this sort of disconnect between certain aspects of city government where, you know, the building division, inspectors, they would um, flag these properties as being in violation. The uh, police department's problem properties unit would often get involved. Uh, the people like Dara, other landlords, would be referred to the city's municipal court. The court they wouldn't show up to their court date or whatever, what have you. But in one way or the other, the courts would issue a warrant for Dara's arrest um, or whoever the landlord may be. You know, in, in Dara in this case. But nothing would really ever happen. So if you were um, comfortable having, you know, several warrants out for your arrest, you could basically run this sort of operation probably into perpetuity, mm-hmm. if not for um, the uh, the city's affirmative litigation unit uh, filing the lawsuit that mm-hmm. it did. That's why we have to think as black people. Stop singing and dancing and start thinking. Thinking and reading. I say reading is more important than watching TV. South suburban Ford Heights hasn't had a library in about 30 years, but residents are still taxed for library services. Where the money goes is a mystery. WBEZ's Adora Numigade set out to find some answers and discovered the village has collected more than $100,000 in taxpayer money over the last decade, but no one will answer for it. The rusted doors to the Ford Heights Community Center lead to a temporary library space some volunteers cobbled together. 
Okay, we're done. The small room contains three computers, a rug, and some used bookshelves that hold about 100 book donations. Everything from colorful children's novels to a navy blue Britannica encyclopedia set. Liddell Jones is president of the Volunteer Ford Heights Library Board. This is all we have right now in the community. Nothing else, nobody can go nowhere, so this is what we got right here. After my interview with Jones, I did some digging to get a handle on the Ford Heights finances. And I learned something shocking. Taxpayers are actually contributing roughly $20,000 a year to the library. That led me to dig some more. It turns out that although there is not a public library right now, and there hasn't been one for years, the residents of Ford Heights are and have been paying for one. Records WBEZ requested show the Ford Heights Public Library District has requested more than $800,000 in levies over the last decade. And over that time, the Cook County Treasurer has distributed more than $121,000 to the Ford Heights Public Library District. So why in the world is a volunteer library needed, I wondered. I reached out to several employees at Ford Heights, but no one returned my phone calls. It's not clear where the money collected for the library is going, but it is clear that it's not going back into a real library. That adversely affects young people like 13-year-old Jessica Baden. She spends time at the new volunteer library after school while knowing that she doesn't have the same library access the majority of kids in other cities do. I don't think we can get to either nearest things. We can't even get uh, like our own, like, you know, library cards because of it, like the debt the city has to those other cities. And it's really sad. So, you know, I hope this library can grow to its own. She's right. The district closed its library roughly 30 years ago after being unable to keep it up to code. So Ford Heights partnered with the neighboring Glenwood-Linwood Public Library to begin offering services in 2004. But Ford Heights fell behind on tens of thousands of dollars in payments. The Ford Heights Village Administrator also won't return my calls. Glenwood-Linwood Director Brian Vaught says the lack of payments forced the program to end just five years after launch. He says his library system has tried to help Ford Heights in other ways, but nothing stuck. Like when a few years ago, the library donated a bookmobile to Ford Heights. But it just sat abandoned on Route 30 for years. The old bookmobile that's sitting, falling apart, dying. <laughs> they had worked it out that they could basically plug in the old book, bookmobile to an outlet on a pole. The bookmobile was towed last fall. Then Vaught says in July, his library started offering digital library cards so Ford Heights residents can access online materials. He plans to continue this program indefinitely and wants to keep trying to find ways to give Ford Heights residents access to books. But he can't. Since Ford Heights technically has a library district of its own, its residents cannot get full access cards at other libraries. So until then, residents will have to use the makeshift library in the community center that's about the size of a dining room. Adora Namigadde, WBEZ News. Dana Ramey Berry discusses the buying and selling of slave cadavers to medical institutions and African-American grave robbers who supplied the trade. Ms. Berry is the author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. A legal battle over who should control one of Broward County's oldest cemeteries is making its way through court. The Westview Community Cemetery holds the remains of some of Broward's pioneering black families. But the graves and the land have not been maintained. Neither have proper burial records. WLRN's Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III has this report from Pompano Beach. 
In January 2020, Walter Hunter made what he would later refer to as one of the hardest decisions he's ever had to make. He and another board member of the Westview Community Cemetery Board of Trustees signed away almost five acres of cemetery land to a developer. The money from the million-dollar deal was meant to revitalize the cemetery, which had fallen into a state of disrepair due to limited funds. Here's Hunter at a city meeting last November. Throughout the years, Westview has faced numerous financial problems and leading the board to make the most difficult decision that we could ever make in selling unused land. And now the time has come to breathe new life into Westview Cemetery. Instead, the deal sparked a wave of ongoing controversy and legal battles. Residents attempted to block the sale in court. They failed. Then they held elections for a new board of trustees. This new nine-member board is challenging the old board in court, asking a judge to put them in control of the cemetery. And that's why we, or I, ran for election on the board, because we wrote a list and it's nearly 100 family members that I have in the cemetery. That's Jason Fuller. He's a lifelong Pompano Beach resident and a member of the newly elected Board of Trustees. Um, then my grandfather, Hugh Fuller. Then my father's mother, Esther Fuller. And then we have family members here. It's not well. uncommon for several generations of families to be buried at Westview. That's because for a long time, it was the only place black residents were allowed to bury their relatives. In 1952, black businessman Paul Hunter donated the land, all 15 acres of it, to be used for burying black residents. Pompano Beach had an existing law banning the integration of the city-run cemetery. Burials at Westview cost $1,600. This is thousands of dollars cheaper than other cemeteries in the area. But the low cost has caused financial challenges for the board. It left the cemetery without regular maintenance. Most headstones, if they exist, are split or crumbling. And in the most egregious case, a vault is cracked so badly that the casket underneath is exposed to the harsh rain and sun and moisture of South Florida. Sonia Finney is another member of the newly elected board. She pointed out some of the examples of the disrepair. Right. Literally, you can see a femur bone in there. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh my God, like seriously. But these individuals have been managing the cemetery for 20 years and did nothing. Finney has grandparents at the cemetery. She just doesn't know where they are buried because of bad record keeping. In May of last year, a group of four residents filed another lawsuit against the old board. They alleged the board changed bylaws to work in their favor stopped holding meetings and elections, and allowed themselves to be paid for serving on the board. While the case makes its way through court, members of the community have taken it into their own hands to care for the cemetery. Elijah Wooten served on the board of trustees from the 60s until the 80s. Most of his family is buried at Westview, and the 91-year-old comes every day to visit them. Mother, father... Two brothers? How often do you come by? Every day. I've been out here this morning. This is part of my trip. Every, every morning I ride by here. 
Anything can be done that I can do to make the place look better. I do. The fate of what remains of the Westview Community Cemetery is now tied up in court. A Broward County judge plans to start hearing arguments from both sides in March. I'm Gerard Albert III in Pompano Beach. So I'm going to share my screen, and we shall get ourselves started. Last winter, the Norwich Historical Society held a local trivia night, a program called All About Norwich, Your Questions Answered. We're going to ask some true-false questions and play a little, few little games, but we'll go ahead and answer as many questions as we can that you all submitted to us. That's Sarah Rucker talking. She's the director of the Historical Society. She went through questions like how the town of Norwich got its name and what old log drives used to look like. It was all very jolly. Then came this moment at the end of the event. Do we have any other questions? Anything anyone wants to share or say in our last few minutes? It was very fun answering all these questions. There was a question that hadn't been answered. It actually came from my old neighbor, Claudia Marib. She wrote in the Zoom chat, and Sarah read her message out loud. I had submitting a question. Oh, you asked a question about Beaver Meadow, Claudia. And the question about Beaver Meadow is one about a, a corner at Mitchell Brook Bridge that has been known and appears on maps and deeds as Darkie Corner. Sarah gave a brief explanation of where the name Darkie Corner might have come from. It's a terrible story. There was a minister who lived in Beaver Meadow at the corner there in the mid-1880s. And he was harassed and abused by local young men in Beaver Meadow, and he was eventually murdered. This minister was named John Harrison. According to town records, he was one of the only black men living in Norwich at the time. So, um, yep, Darkey Bridge. It's also known as Darkey Corner. It also is known as N Corner and N Bridge. So it's a pretty racist, there's some pretty racist pieces. That same night, Claudia emailed me. At the time, I was living next door to her, on Dirt Road, about a two-minute walk away. She forwarded me an old newspaper clipping about John Harrison's alleged murder that Sarah had sent her after the event. It's from the St. Albans Messenger in January of 1896. Here's Claudia reading from the beginning. Harrison, the Negro preacher, lived in a little one-story shanty which sat in a fork of the road about a mile from Beaver Meadow on the road to Sharon. The trout brook controlled by the Lake Mitchell Trout Club runs within a stone's throw of the house. I started reading the article, then stopped. It was violent, and I wanted to wait until daytime. Because this description of where John Harrison had lived, it was where I was living. 
where two dirt roads come together next to a stream in West Norwich. The stream is loud. It sounds like it's raining whenever you step outside. And I felt confident this was the same place John Harrison lived, because there was a reason Claudia had been asking about the name Darkie Bridge. It was written on her deed, describing where her property line ends and mine began. Obviously, I thought of that as a racist term, and I wondered why. The word darky is a slur, mostly used in the late 18 and early 1900s. And for Claudia, it really stuck out. Like, what was the story here with African Americans? Or was there racism here? Or what was the history? And I would bring it up with different people, but there wasn't a whole lot of information. Uh, And so when the Historical Society asked residents for questions, I asked that question. She had no idea. Her question would lead to the story of a preacher, a young man who moved to Norwich just a few years before he was killed. Neither did any of the neighbors she talked about this with, including me. After that night, I wanted to learn more about John Harrison's life and the people responsible for his death. But when I started looking into it, there was no gravesite or death certificate, nothing in a Google search or in academic literature about what happened. And not having that record felt like a big omission, especially in Vermont, where so much of our history has been kept and remembered. Because however ugly it is, what happened to John Harrison played a part in shaping this community today, and who was permitted to live here and who wasn't. But what happened had not been entirely forgotten. There were rumors, decades ago, of something horrible that happened here. In my mind, I had this image of a man being burned in his own home. Jane Keller first moved to the area in the 1970s. I met her at an old chapel about a mile from where John Harrison lived, built a few decades after his death. Early on when I first came here, I heard a story of a man who was killed there, a black man who This house was burned, and maybe he was in it. I didn't know, but it was a vague, rumored story. And it um, felt bad because it's such a beautiful place. I I love it here. And it never really came up. Just more in the back of my mind, I always hoped it wasn't true. Jane never learned anything more, and it sort of faded away until that event last year with the Norwich Historical Society. It's hard to verify details about John Harrison's life, but newspaper articles say he was a young man when he moved to the area, around 25. His father had been enslaved, and both his parents died when he was young. He was raised in upstate New York by a, quote, Christian family. If it's called a Christian family, this is almost certainly a euphemism for a white family. Professor John Salant studies black religion in early America at Western Michigan University. 
he was basically adopted into a white family and then reared by them. And then probably in like mid adolescence, he started doing local work for his upkeep. John has written extensively about a black minister who lived in Rutland in the late 1700s and led a congregation there for decades. He had never heard of John Harrison, but he agreed to read through some of the old newspaper articles I sent him to provide some context. When John Harrison moves to Vermont, it's the 1880s. Reconstruction in the former Confederate states has ended. Jim Crow laws and racial segregation are the norm. Thousands of Black people are targeted by racial violence, leading to mass migration north and west. In Vermont, there were just over a thousand Black people in the whole state, according to the 1880 census. Most Black men worked as farmhands, laborers, or barbers around this time. Some had their own farms, but there weren't many other options for work if you were Black. Most banks wouldn't loan you money for a business. You couldn't get a job as a carpenter or teacher. And factories and railroads wouldn't hire you. As a young man, John Harrison decided to become a preacher. And he probably picked up other work to get by. According to one newspaper article, he didn't know how to read or write. But he likely grew up listening to people read from the Bible. My guess is he probably has like a repertoire of a couple of dozen Bible stories. And he can pull on those and preach as needed. And John Salen says moving to a place like West Norwich made a certain amount of sense. For decades, a lot of people had been leaving Vermont, heading west. Many established parishes had disbanded. And being a minister in rural northern New England wasn't exactly a coveted job. So then this creates opportunities for people like John Harrison. Essentially, he would have been an itinerant minister traveling around and maybe preaching to people who hadn't heard a sermon for a long time. People are kind of hungry for sermons. And so someone who can fill that void is going to be welcomed here and there. In early 1886, John Harrison's name started showing up in newspaper notices all over the region, advertising where he's preaching. At the Village Hall in Taftsville, a schoolhouse in Orange, a Baptist church in Hardwick, an outdoor meeting in West Groton. Here he is in January in Walden. In 1887. Yep, North Walden, to a fair audience. So he was getting good-sized audiences. Sarah Rooker from the Norwich Historical Society found a bunch of these articles to show me. And John Harrison wasn't the only black preacher in Vermont around this time. In the mid-1800s, a man named Charles Bowles traveled the state by horseback, preaching in different towns. He bought land in Huntington and gained a large following there. And there were certainly others like him. But many of these stories haven't been written down. The records are hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. 
In John Harrison's case, besides newspaper clippings, he also shows up in the grand lists of the town of Norwich. They're these marble-bound books written in beautiful cursive, listing every household in town, how much land they owned, and if they paid a poll tax. John Harrison did not own property. The land where he lived belonged to an old farmer, according to deed records. But he did pay taxes in 1888 and 1889. Then he disappears. About two miles away from John Harrison's house, on a small farm in Sharon, lived brothers named William and Albert Eastman. Both were in their early 20s. And they seemed to have a lot of relatives living nearby. At least three other families with the same last name lived in the area, according to maps from the mid-1800s. And the brothers liked to go fishing. One of their regular spots took them right past John Harrison's house they talk and sometimes harass him. In 1895, about five years after John Harrison disappeared, William Eastman got into trouble. He was caught breaking into someone's home and stealing cider. The postmaster of West Norwich testified against him in a criminal case, and a couple months later, William decided to get revenge. He had a fight at the post office, and the postmaster shot him, he claimed, in self-defense. And this is when John Harrison's name again appears in the newspaper. Claudia Marib, my old neighbor, read the account from the St. Albans Messenger. The bullet lodged in the groin, and for a time it was thought that he would die. It was during this period, according to the rumor, that Eastman, supposing himself on his deathbed, is said to have made a confession to the attending physician to the effect that he and three others murdered the Negro and then buried the body in the cellar of his house. Again, this next part is described as a rumor, printed several years after John Harrison disappeared, and William Eastman's doctor denied hearing any confession. Still, the story goes on in graphic detail. Claudia reads what's alleged to have happened in the fall of 1890. And a heads up, the language in this article is jarring and violent. One day, perhaps two weeks before Harrison disappeared, the two Eastman boys made Harrison a call and left him for dead. The boys had pounded the Negro on the head with an iron kettle until the bell broken and left a big ridge across his forehead. The boys then went up the village and told what they had done, and it is said that they afterward boasted that they would finish him yet. The neighbors went to the Negro's home and found him in a serious condition. In a day or two, he was out again and made a complaint to Wayne Johnson, the town grand juror, but he referred the preacher to the state's attorney at Bethel. Nothing was done about it. After that, John Harrison was afraid to stay in his home alone. He moved in with a neighbor, not far up the road, and he took most of his furniture with him, according to the article. As the story goes, he told them that he would bring the rest up the next morning, but was never seen again. 
A few days after, the gable ends of the Negro's house were torn out. Next, the roof was torn off. By and by, the frame was cut, and the house was finally razed to the ground. Nothing but the cellar, still, and part of the floor now remaining. Other accounts say the house burned down. A follow-up article says the selectmen of Norwich started an investigation to search for the body. They poked around the remains of the house and were said to have found a Bible and a small bag. But the ground was frozen at the time. This was late January, and they couldn't dig past the cellar. Sarah Ricker from the Norwich Historical Society tried to find out if anything else came of the investigation. I looked for a record of his death, and there's nothing in the town records. And I looked in the select board's expense reports just to see if there was any mention, nothing. So it's not showing up in the town records at all. After that, there's no mention of John Harrison again in any newspaper articles or anywhere in the archives of the Norwich Historical Society. Up a flight of stairs in a room filled with boxes of diaries and business ledgers and photographs, my colleague Elodie Reed asked Sarah about this. So there's nothing in this entire room that records this incident? No. Not that we found. (laughs) And it's pretty well cataloged. I mean, we have a pretty good... Not having a record of what happened to John Harrison, it's not surprising. They get forgotten in terms of people who are living in a community actually knowing about it. Up until last year, Deborah Karen King was a sociology professor at Dartmouth College. She's retired now, but she's still working on the Dartmouth and Slavery Project, documenting the college's involvement with the transatlantic slave trade. And she says learning about crimes like this gives a more nuanced account of life in small-town Vermont, including for the Black people living there. The presence of African Americans in Vermont means that we not only note their presence, but also really want to recognize some of the troubling things that absolutely happened. She says some of those troubling things still show up today. Cases that sporadically make the news of racism in Vermont schools, policing, and the state house. And we kind of think, oh, they come out of the blue. And they don't come out of the blue in the sense that Vermont is still a part of those dynamics and history of the United States overall. And it also takes away the romanticization that Vermont is tolerant and accepting and all of that. And so that we shouldn't be surprised when some of the negative stuff and the bad stuff happens. Claudia still wants to do more to honor John Harrison's life. Right now, she's just not sure what that should look like. For Vermont Public, I'm Lexi Krupp. Medical Apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on Black Americans from colonial times to the present. The video is real, and it happened at Mount Hope and East Henrietta Road. 
AMR ambulances have a camera system that records inside and outside the rig, and that's the video you're going to see here. The ambulance had its sirens on. The medic in the passenger seat looks out the window in the direction of a blue car, and that's when he reacts. That's a I'm sorry. I'm a the ambulance took the first left off East Henrietta, and that's when the clip ends. Today, AMR told me this. We are aware of a video showing a former employee using unacceptable and offensive language. We want to make it unequivocally clear that AMR does not tolerate racism or discrimination of any kind. The behavior displayed in the video is against our core values and code of conduct. We deeply regret the hurt and distress this incident has caused and reaffirm our dedication to upholding the highest standards of conduct and professionalism. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he will not get out of our truck. Okay. And he's got to go. AMR is already under investigation by the state after an incident in November. EMTs asked police to remove a man from their ambulance after they said he grabbed one of them. 20 seconds later, the man collapsed on the sidewalk and was left for two and a half minutes. He died two and a half weeks later. To help confirm the new video, I drove the same route. The lights, buildings, trees, and roads match. The union that represents AMR EMT said... Our organization condemns hate speech in any and all forms. We have begun the process of partnering with community groups to bring about the systemic changes needed at AMR Rochester. We blurred the EMT's faces because we haven't had a chance to talk to the EMT who was in that passenger seat. Last week, when we were talking about the November incident, Mayor Malik Evans says AMR has a contract with the city but doesn't answer to the city. Berkeley Green News 10, NBC. The government's been in bed with the entire telecommunications industry since the 40s. They've infected everything. They get into your bank statements, computer files, email, listen to your phone calls. My wife's been saying that for years. Every wire, every airwave. More technology you use, the easier it is for them to keep tabs on you. It's a brave new world out there. Grandfather is suing the parent companies of Macy's and Sunglass Hut after he was wrongfully accused and arrested for robbery in Harris County in 2022. But that's just where the story begins. Fox 26's Anthony Antoine spoke with the victim's lawyer. He joins us now with those details. Anthony. Well, faulty facial recognition software is at the heart of this case. 61-year-old Harvey Eugene Murphy Jr., a grandfather, was taken to jail because the technology pinned him as the primary suspect for that robbery. But according to the lawsuit he was taken to jail and in a matter of hours he was beaten raped and then released and now years later he's suing on january 22nd 2022 this sunglass hut on west gray in houston was robbed by two armed men the employees inside were threatened at gunpoint and taken to the back of the store while the suspect stole money and several pairs of glasses sunglass hut may not have access to facial recognition software and so the documents show that they took the video to Macy's, who then used his features to determine that he was the one that had robbed the Macy's before and identified him as Mr. Murphy and told Sunglass Hut. Daniel Duco, the lawyer for 61-year-old Harvey Eugene Murphy Jr., who is from Houston, says his client was in California at the time of the crime. Murphy Jr. eventually moved back to Texas for work in October of 2023. And he goes to the DMV to get his driver's license renewed. 
and the police officer comes from around the counter and puts handcuffs on him and arrests him. And that was the beginning of a life-changing ordeal. Murphy was taken to jail for multiple felony warrants for the robbery at the Sunglass Hut. Court documents suggest the store employee was also prepped by the company and identified Murphy as the robber, with facial recognition playing a key role in his arrest. Murphy gave officers his alibi. It checked out, and he was told he would be released. While he was being held in jail, he was going to use the restroom. He was beaten sexually assaulted, raped. Because of the nature of the alleged crime, lawyers say Murphy Jr. was put alongside violent criminals. Three men followed him to the bathroom and raped him with a shank pressed against his neck. He was released and the case was dismissed. He is now suing the parent company of Sunglass Hut and Macy's for using the facial recognition software that led to his false imprisonment. The dangers of using this technology is also outlined in court documents. I know for a fact that studies have showed that African Americans have a high rate of false positives based on facial recognition software. I also know comparing people who are older with pictures of them, of other people when younger, so age gaps have a very high rate, up to 90% of false positives. According to his lawyer, Murphy has long-standing physical and psychological injuries, and he is now coming forward to raise awareness and hopefully prevent this from happening to someone else. Now, I want to note here the Houston Police Department and Harris County is not named in this lawsuit. It's a long list of people here, and they're not one of them. Murphy's attorney also believes the parent companies for Macy's and Sunglass Hut are the real people at fault here, and they are suing for $10 million. We did our due diligence. I reached out to Macy's. They say, quote, we have no comment on pending litigation. Five, four, three. She's pure alligator, pure white. Two. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. One. Albino Now, a hundred years ago, large groups of northern white rhino used to roam across many parts of Central Africa. Today, poaching has brought them as close to extinction as it's possible to be. There are only two of them left, and both are female, so time is running out. But now an international team of scientists has successfully implanted an embryo into one of its near relatives, the southern white rhino, for the first time proving that IVF is possible in the species. Our science editor, Rebecca Morell, explains what the scientists have done. There are only two northern white rhinos left, Najin and Fatu, a mother and daughter who live on a reserve in Kenya. But now there is hope for the species. Scientists have managed to make IVF work in a southern white rhino, the less endangered cousin of the northern whites. A southern white rhino embryo, created in a lab from sperm and an egg, was implanted into a surrogate who fell pregnant. Suzanne Holzer from the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research in Germany says it's taken years and 13 attempts for this to reach this point. It is really a great milestone to achieve the first successful embryo transfer in the rhino. It's very challenging in terms of... Uh, placing an embryo inside of the reproductive tract, which is almost two meters inside of the animal. But now I think with this achievement, we I'm very confident that we will be able to create northern white rhinos in the same manner. The success, though, was hit by tragedy. Two months into her pregnancy, the surrogate rhino died from an unrelated bacterial infection. 
but a post-mortem examination revealed that her fetus had a 95% chance of being born alive, proof that the technique works. The team now wants to attempt IVF using northern white rhino embryos. 30 are stored in labs in Germany and Italy, but there's a complication. Najin and Fatu, the last northern whites, can't carry a pregnancy, so the embryos have to be implanted into a southern white rhino. IVF across two subspecies has never been attempted before, but the team's confident it will work, and they hope to try the procedure in the coming months. Rebecca Morell. Amazing, man. Amazing. We would, we would improve our quality of life. We could pretend to be northern white rhinos. White people would fund and cheer and improve our quality of life exponentially. Still vegan, so I don't have beef with my northern white rhino brothers. You see, they didn't put all that attention on the southern rhinos. They kind of niggardly. <laughs> we just use them as little mule vessels to get our white brothers right, get their population increased. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, worthless Negro from Virginia, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Our weekly compensatory call-in, not for spectators. If you have commentary, observations, questions to share, the number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61. If you would like to participate, number again, 605 313 Five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate not for spectators listener supported counter racist radio we will have been on the air for 15 years next month. That is nothing to celebrate, and we never have a party for our anniversary. Might not even be worth non-white people's time and energy for us to be on the air. Certainly many, 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 many victims of white supremacy throughout the galaxy conclude gusty renegade the cows eight thumbs down even be thinking about that is this worth my time and energy how does this help me better understand white supremacy racism what the system of white supremacy is and how it works you should be able to answer some of those questions Anywho, 15 years, uninterrupted, counter-racist broadcasting. Next month, February 21st, specifically. I can even point last week, 
we have been on our counter racist grind for this month really for the last 15 years but I mean hey we did not just you know hey rest on our laurels and do a program every three months or so no way we have been a rolling and what have we been talking about can help answer those questions is this worth my time and energy we were here Sunday Dr. Angel Lynn Spalding Flowers we have a white guest only policy I'm very serious about that the only time that we talk to a non-white person like Dr. Haddix and have to be I found something that was really really informative peculiar interesting noteworthy and there'll be something really outstanding about this and there should be a strong bias towards there's something peculiar in a constructive manner not peculiarly ghoulish peculiarly uh, titillating but peculiar in an informative manner Dr. Haddix white supremacy in aviation interesting and constructive I thought he was just with us the end of last month Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers wow hung out with us twice really helped me I think others get a much better understanding of of white supremacy racism with these school shootings Ubaldi, Ethan Crumbly Columbine, all of it really and being white putting that at the center of these school shootings she was just with us on Sunday reminded us about the Uvalde situation so grand and to hear about her coming project more on white supremacy racism more to come the very next day we had Dr. Sean David Long suspected racist white man we talked about his brand new dissertation just published months ago the politics of white violence I said wow that is amazing had that the day after we talk about white school shooters with Dr. Flowers same topic really and he agreed even he brought up Timothy McVeigh and then I mentioned Dr. Flowers work and how the Columbine killers were influenced by Tim McVeigh and April 19 and all the rest of it and perfect sense perfect symmetry duh and then we were supposed to be on Tuesday we got a reschedule Wednesday early white woman doctor Rebecca J Frazier we talked about her book white woman running the plantation in South Carolina no less shout to Nikki Haley and Dylan Roof early joined us live from England or UK well yeah England she said about an hour Norwich the England Norwich about an hour from London joined us she called herself a white ally I said what did I say you were an ally she said no 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 is it correct for me to suspect you're a racist yes suspected racist Dr. Rebecca J. Frazier with us this past Tuesday talked about the system of white supremacy even 
white support of old Donald Trump came up a few times over the week, but that eat book club, lots of hopefully very constructive content uh, and daily content. I think I said, I don't even remember, but I said some time back, we will be on every day for the foreseeable uh, future at the same time demonstration right there in the archives if you missed anything at all invest if you think the cows is constructive hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio You'll see the links for Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal. Address for Cash App, cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Now, let's see. Some of the audio segments that we heard will nab our callers and get one update in as well. Uh, audio segments. Uh, we heard former President Trump triumphed in New Hampshire for the primary. Uh, they think it's pretty much it is all done. He is going to be the GOP nominee rematch. Biden Trump two. I'm taking Trump again. Anyway, we'll see how all of that unfolds. White women, white women across all demographics, age groups, education levels, white women, the bulk of them supported Trump both times. I suspect that trend will continue. That is total malarkey uh, talking about white women are going to be there. Don't count on it. Uh, let's see. The segment in Wyoming about the firearms that deaths of despair that's what I was thinking uh, really and I played Mr. Fuller where he talked about individuals classified as white they have made the practice of white supremacy racism that is what their life their existence is about you remove that like what what are we supposed to be doing they lose interest, become self-destructive, killing each other, killing themselves. That's what you're seeing right now. Anxiety, stress, white genetic annihilation, opioid deaths and all the rest of it. They said in and particularly in Wyoming, they said they have and for some time high level of firearm ownership, high level of suicides by firearms specifically and I've seen that before there's a lot of data where if you own a firearm increased likelihood of death by suicide specifically those were individuals classified as white and that's a super white state Wyoming but they said if you have mental health concerns there's an immediate fear up we need you to surrender your firearms that right there White genetic annihilation. Dr. Welsing talked about that consistently. It's in the ISIS papers. Castration anxiety, if you will. 
You're going to take my great equalizer and leave me naked. What am I going to do to fend off all these Negroes on a planet dominated by non-white people in terms of population numbers, not power? You can't take away my firearm. What do you mean? I don't care what's going on with my mental health. You can't have my firearm. That's my equalizer. That is for sure white thinking. In fact, you heard it repeatedly in that segment where they said, hey, this is a state. We, Wyoming, we white people did not expand Medicaid. Uh Uh-oh, where have I heard that before? We're not doing no Obamacare here. That old nigger. We didn't want him in the White House to begin with, much less talking about some nigger care and having all these dark people and hopping the board and coming over here and taking my tax dollars and all that dying of whiteness they got whole books Jonathan Metzl about that exactly individuals classified as white I don't care if I do die get my will out right now and then and then you see if you can pry that gun from my cold dead hand give me my Charlton Heston on him now that was Wyoming then they went to Colorado with the same thing right next door really right man it is stunning the amount of news that pops up relevant to Colorado that now I'm mindful about just because we spent all that time studying vodka and Reb vodka do you remember when I talked to Dr. Langman and I raised the point hey you got a 17 year old named vodka isn't this a problem? You got these children smoking. They got a smoker's pit at the school. I thought that was against the law. Can you just go and buy a whole carton of uh, Marlboro cigarettes in Colorado? If you're a white teen, it's all oh, oh, boys will be. That's what he said in the archives. He's boys will be boys. I don't think. What? Now, and I saw that Denver Post series. That was part of why I played it because, in fact, I have been talking to people about that Denver Post series. I was stunned. Well, I can't really say stunned, but it definitely caught my attention in a constructive manner. More deaths from alcohol than opioids in Colorado. Wow. And it was four parts. I had even been sharing it. I think I posted it on social media weeks ago because I was going to say old, but I mean, that's relative. I think it's from this calendar year but it was not from this week even though that audio segment from NPR was from this week but I thought that was important either way what does that moron say sobriety would be best and they disambiguated those deaths related to alcohol oh yeah you got to go out and my you know blood alcohol content is point three or whatever and I drive off the cliff or do whatever it is but you also got the chronic use and so now I have liver failure and cancer and all the rest of these old health problems oh diabetes oh they included that too to get to that number sobriety would be best now that's one too because they even said within that we already know some of the things that would you know lessen this Increase alcohol taxes, nah. access to alcohol. They did the exact opposite during the pandemic. They made alcohol 
more accessible, at least here in the States. Now, I don't know. They didn't do this everywhere, but at least here, they said, oh, no, the liquor store, essential business. And then they said, oh, no, we got the restaurant is closed. The tavern is closed. Uh, Cash and carry. Now, that was illegal forever. Not now. Now you can go and get Long Island iced tea or whatever it is you drink. Get your mojito. Drive up just like you're going to McDonald's. Give them the money. Boop, give them my drink and I drive off. Now, that seems even like it's encouraging drunk driving. I know all that. It just goes on and on. Increasing value. And now you even have more establishments. Now, I know they don't have this everywhere, but you have a lot of places like God Awful Nevada. You can get tequila in the grocery store. I went long and said Nevada, but I mean, you could do that here in Washington State, too. I think you could do that the whole West Coast, California. You can get liquor at the grocery store. Vodka, tequila, Hennessy, whatever you're drinking. Belvedere, whatever you're drinking. Patron, whatever you're drinking. Loaf of bread, (laughs) frozen pizza, all in one swoop. That, nah, we don't want to do that. Easy access to liquor for all. Uh, including the children. Uh, let's see. Vodka. I also thought it was important that Colorado, like Washington State, that's one of the first regions to legalize cannabis. Not that that necessarily had anything to do with that report on alcohol-related deaths. Uh, let's see. The... Racial dislocation confusion. They talked on a national scale the amount of uh, difficulty in finding affordable housing, and that's not what is being built, uh, and the type of jobs. And we're talking about you have to have a job at a hospital or something to be able to even uh, afford rent. Uh, and even, it, I'm thinking, the book club, hey, housing can be a big reason white people come to your house just like they did with Minister Malcolm X and just like they did with Serena and Venus Williams and say ooh we got a problem here you don't have enough bedrooms we're going to have to take little Leroy or little Malcolm which they did anyway They talked all that about the housing insecurity and it's not affordable and all the rest of it. Now, I didn't really hear racism, white supremacy come up in that because, I mean, that would be at the center of it all. It is really non-white people. I mean, sure thing. You got white sacrifice and all the rest of it and white people out on the park bench and all that. But, I mean, wow, it's really non-white. You got a lot of non-white people who have income and they do work at the hospital and you just don't want to give them housing because they're Negro. That led to the second sequence. I will say this week, wow, I was so impressed with the sequencing this week. That's not every week. I do work to, you know, not just randomly slop things together, but great job this week. The report directly following that was specifically about St. Louis have to pause because the reason just like with Colorado the reason that I pay attention to a lot of things that happen in St. Louis Missouri now is because of Michael Brown Jr. 
But they talked about because there's a lack of affordable housing, you have illegal rooming houses probably across the world, but certainly in Missouri and in St. Louis specifically. Dara Doherty, I had to go and check. No confusion. Suspected race soldier, white woman, Dara Doherty, says she has all these properties that have been condemned and is running a massive illegal rooming house system in St. Louis. That's one I'm so glad they had a picture so I could get the confirmation. Bang, Dara Derry, okay, white woman. That's one. Can we see? And I mean, I know the shame and all that, but I mean, they could have just showed like their hands or, you know, ankles, something like that. So we don't have to get identity. But is this a lot of dark people? They got piled up in these condit, which would, in my view, got to be some sort of fire trap where you could die. All of your possessions burned to anything, anything in something that's been condemned and you got to pay this wretched white race soldier. And matter of fact, even to get the extra details, cause I was looking to see like, is this a white woman? Cause they didn't give the racial dynamics of all this and they're given the details. So I look, this is riverfront times, St. Louis slumlord. See, even that, if you're going to call her a slumlord, she hadn't been convicted racist long history of that, right? We, We've done tons of programs about this specifically. Illinois isn't that far from Missouri. We had Beryl Satter as a guest on the program. Uh, we talked about her dad, White. He was a white property owner, just like Dara Darty, rented to black people, slums, just like Miss Darty. She talks about this was a wide system of racism scamming those black people doing the same thing slumlord how about racist slum in fact you only have to give me that just give me white slumlord got federal covid relief funds tent say this is from tuesday january 23 so like four days ago on and off since 2014 danielle hopkins has rented from Dara Darty, the St. Louis slumlord who was hit last week with a lawsuit from the city accusing her of operating illegal rooming houses in 39 condemned houses across the South City. Most recently, Hopkins spent roughly five years at a house on South 38th Street in Dutchtown, a house that the city says has been condemned since November 2018. During that time, the city cited the house for a litany of violations and it was not legally habitable, but that didn't stop Doherty from collecting $850 a month in rent from Hopkins. Then there was the portion picked up by taxpayers. Hopkins says that at Doherty's urging, she applied for money from a state-administered COVID-19 relief program and ended up getting more than $3,000, all of which Hopkins says went straight into Doherty's pocket. Hopkins says that even though Doherty was getting rental assistance money through her, a corresponding amount was not knocked off the rent. You need to pay. You need to pay. Hopkins says she heard from Doherty again and again. See, that sounds just like 
suspected route. I'm going to take it all. Greedy, I'm going to take it all. How are you getting COVID relief funds for a condemned property? And they got pictures. I mean, are you serious? Are you serious? 39 of these units. And, and they said there were warrants out for her arrest. Now, I started all this. One more time, pause, Michael Brown Jr. I have not. It's been, at this point, what do we talk, 10 years, right? At this point, it's been 10 years. In that decade, I have not heard nary a report that said Michael Brown Jr. had a warrant out for his arrest. Strong arm robbery notwithstanding, I have not heard there was a warrant Pick that nigra up on sight. You telling me you got warrants out? And in St. Louis? This is the place where they said, the DOJ said, they got a racket, man. Pulling folks over and getting the fines. And that's how they subsidize the budget for the municipal uh, funds and such. Here, you're running around with warrants and operating condemned properties and you're stealing COVID-19 funds? What? What does it mean to be white? That's another one. I said, don't leave out the white man, Dara Doherty. That's not a white man. White woman. White woman. Probably a Trump voter if that means anything. Uh, Let's see. Ford Heights, that's in, I just mentioned Illinois. I just mentioned Illinois. Ford Heights is in Illinois. That's the location where they said, we are paying $100,000 in taxes for library funds, fees specifically. We got no library. I had to look. I said, what type of town are they stealing Tens of thousands of dollars in taxes. You can't even get a library. You haven't had a library in decades. Who lives here? Nearly 2,000 people. Population in Ford Heights, Illinois. It is over 91 percent nigra thought I was going to say white please you're not going to find no you will not never I would cancel the cows immediately you find a racially restricted region where they've been looting the town for decades and they can't even get a library that is real nigger and in fact retract that is real plantational. You niggers not supposed to be reading anyway. It can't even just be, hey, we don't want you niggers reading, so keep your raggedy tax dollars. You don't contribute anything anyway. You're out smoking crack and you don't own any property. So you you keep your little, you know, measly uh, pennies and, uh, you know, just no lie. You don't read anyway. What's the big deal? They could have did that right, right? Nah. <laughs> We're going to just keep stealing the money. And they said, look, you hear what they said? They said, where is the money going 
that's supposed to fund the library that is not in Ford Heights, Illinois, over 91% black. Who knows? The Lord works in mysterious ways. Come on, man. Come on. They said, we don't have a library and the previous library was not up to code. I said, wow. Did Gusty, did you play that right after the St. Louis report? Yes, sir. I said, wow, Gusty, awesome job. Awesome job. Woo. Negroes can't get nothing up to. Well, now that is assuming that the people that have to stay in the dilapidated, condemned properties in St. Louis are Negroes. I don't think that's much of a leap, but whatever. Uh, can't get nothing up to code. Can't get nothing up to code. They said in lieu of the library, we had a bookmobile that was towed last fall. I have never heard anything more niggerish, pitiful. What do you say? Worthy of great pity. We don't have a library. They're stealing from us and lying about that. And the bookmobile got towed last month. Are you serious? We should have like the most hooked up bookmobile ever. If we can't even get a library, they could have been taking that money and hooking up the bookmobile. You could have had like a Lexus bookmobile. Flashy, spinning rims on it, like audio books playing out of the side. Every, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> Thank God. The bookmobile is sitting on cinder blocks. Are you serious? Muffler, muffler is dragging on the back <laughs> I'm done. I'm done reading this morning. Put it there. Man, man, man. I don't know how far Ford Heights is from Chicago, but man, I'm sure Chicago, Dr. Welsing, I'm sure she's familiar with Ford Heights. They talked to one of the little tykes there, little black boy, privileged, privileged, privileged. They said, hey, little fella. He said, man, I don't think we're going to be able to get to even this. We don't have a library. I said, what? Evenness? What? What is even? And then I had to stop. So, oh, they don't even have a library. He's doing, <laughs> you're doing great, young fella. That's right. That's right. I was thinking they do say we don't have a level playing field, but they don't say. <laughs> you're doing great, young fella. You're doing great. But I said, see there? See there? They know you don't have access to books. You don't get to work your brain computer. Said they got to just make do with the makeshift. All right, we always get the old tacky, trifling, jalopy, leftover makeshift supply. That's us for forever. That's all. That's how we ended up with chitlins. That's the whole of Negro culture is real makeshift and tattered, bedraggled and pitiful. Let's see the. Speaking of which, Broward County, that's right down uh, close to where retired firefighters and them are, the cemetery. What I just said, <laughs> bedraggled, raggedy, tacky. Where is Grandpa Bear? What is the Lord works in mysterious ways. They got whole books about that. That's why I included that at the beginning. Um last one I will get in quickly or maybe two. Oh, I have the update I totally forgot about that so at least with the news reports that section on Minister John Harrison in Vermont now pause Vermont the state 
well over 90% white. Well over. Minister John Harrison, they said, why is it darker, or excuse me, darky bridge? Darky, and then they got it in the deeds and said, darky bridge. Negra corner. They said they got all these names. Say, why why is it called that? And then say, we're ignorant about racism, white supremacy in a town, excuse me, in a state over 90% white. Hmm. That's one of those, even these so-called rumors which seemed like they were kind of hitting accurate to the point they knew something about it like hmm it's called darky bridge hmm we don't have many darkies here hmm <laughs> and apparently there are reports of someone confessing to killing a nigra here that's wouldn't take a lot of sleuthing and judging white people that I see today and their fascination with true crime oh my god that would have been the talk of the town for years <laughs> like oh man do you remember when they killed that negro oh yes mm-hmm. bashed his skull in and buried him under the room mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. came what they did to Poe Minister Hare I loved his sermons mm-hmm. And then they go around and tell different stories and make up things. I I heard that they burned the place down and carted his femur off in a jar. Mm. And then sit around and talk about that. Put it on the maps. Put it in the deeds and such. And then, who I never, what, what you mean, darky? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anywho, uh, Learn a little bit about low and if anything, asking questions because it seemed like all of that started. Same thing that I've been saying really for years. Learn local history, which really will just give you an opportunity. Study the local system of white supremacy racism. It can be a family project. It seemed like all of that about what happened with Minister John Harrison came from they had a zoom session maybe it was online too about local history for norwich vermont and someone just asked the question what is this darky bridge what is this why why is it named that and let's do some digging why is it named that's why fuller says that all the time just start with a question being curious about particularly where you live where we live at signs and bridges and statues and landmarks that we pass every day just be curious about what is that who is that why is it named after this person who was that oh okay okay why is it called this i see how long has it been here why was it put here who put it? Oh, okay hmm. you can make it a family project they said they didn't even find any books but they went and found all this stuff, newspaper articles, and that fast and confessions, deathbed confess. That's why I said that's all just two crimes. Same thing. White people love that killer. The politics of white violence. 
white people kill for funds. I mean, hey, we love that. We didn't have no Netflix or Twitter. So, I mean, hey, we'll read about how they bashed in old Minister Harrison. Read about that all day long. That'll be rumors all the way. We don't have nothing else to talk about. Learn a little bit about local history and ask questions anytime they have some sort of event. Uh, that's why here at the archives when Dorothy Roberts came, I asked question. I was the first person. Get me a question in. Or I think I went second that day, but all the non-white people went first. Ask a question. Never know what sort of information they may dig up. Now, oh, and whoop, Minister John Harrison, they said he was adopted. Isn't that what we're reading right now? And they said they could decode that because it, in the records, it said he was adopted by Christian parents. And they said Christian is code for white. Hmm. That's how they process that Jesus is white. too. Christian is code for white. Fascinating. But he was adopted by white people in Vermont. Fascinating. Just like Devante Hart. And apparently the same thing happened. How about that? Anyway, uh, the update, speaking of adoption, we just had Dorothy Roberts here uh, two weeks ago, University of Washington. She did two talks, and I said they titled the event Broken Systems during the discussion and this was specifically the panel discussion which featured Dorothy Roberts and four other scholars all of them classified as black Professor Roberts specifically made a point that was emphasized stressed I think the system is not broken the system is working perfectly Devante Hart is supposed to be taken from his black biological parents attempted and placed with white parents in a racially restricted region thousands of miles away from where he was born. That is exactly what is supposed to happen. That is exactly what has been happening for decades. That is the system of white supremacy she made this a point of emphasis I said I emailed because the event was titled broken systems that seemed like a contradiction to me I emailed the event organizers and I uh, read the response letter that I got back from one of the organizers uh, last week and then I said I also emailed at the same time all of the black panelists now, I normally don't do this sort of thing. I'm not out. I didn't view it as a challenge to anyone specifically. It just it seemed like a contradiction to me. If a pan, I mean, if we're talking about anything, if you're going to title the event broken systems and then a key point of the panelists is that the systems are not broken. They are working perfectly as intended. You know what? What the deal? <laughs> so anyway, so I emailed uh, all of the panelists Dorothy Roberts responded and I said I've got to get I've been mentioning her so much and then she popped up in the flipping book that we are reading we were once a family about Devontae Hart and the whole raggedy racist child welfare system which Dorothy Roberts has written about eloquently for many decades now 
Uh, so this, uh, get on the record what I wrote to all of the panelists. Uh, dear Dr. Roberts, Dr. Pittman, Dr. Rollins, Dr. Trotter, Dr. McLemore, all black. I was fortunate to attend your January 11 panel at the University of Washington, and it was a wonderful experience. I was able to encourage a pal to come along, and she was also overjoyed with your collective knowledge and gratitude for black scholarship. I wanted to ask you all a quick question. The panel was titled, Torn Apart, which is the title of Dorothy Roberts' most recent book. However, the Broken Systems part is not in the title or subtitle of Dorothy Roberts' book. Continuing, Torn Apart, Anti-Blackness and Broken Systems. Unless I'm mistaken, the panel seemed to explicitly emphasize that the system is not broken. It is functioning correctly as designed, harming black people. It seemed the panel was in agreement about this important point. I thought this was a significant contradiction from the title of the event. Should students and activists be thinking that the system is broken or should we remember and emphasize that the immense harm to black people is the result of an ongoing, well-maintained system? Question. I thank you all for your time and energy. Stay warm and keep up the life-saving work. Until justice, Leroy. I thought that was so cute. I didn't feel, I didn't uh, introduce myself to Dr. Roberts. Says, oh, yeah, you better guest on that program or anything like Nobody, I've never met anyone where it'd be like, oh my goodness, Gusty Renegade, can we take a picture and go get vegan cream cheese and I uh, just got a million. That never has, uh, yeah. Panic button, panic that normally is the type of response. So, Leroy, Dorothy Roberts, I get my response, which I was stunned. Um, let's see. Oh, here, here we go. Here we go. I. My response to this is simple. The systems are broken for some people. They are working for others, which is why they aren't changed. I think it is a both and without interrogating who is benefiting from the system. They will never see it as broken because it isn't for them. And they will continue to hoard resources, money, humans, human, I mean, I messed it up, humans, money, space, time, and reputational until they can see them as such. I don't see it as a contradiction at all, but curious about what others have to say. Hmm. Fascinating. Fasc- oh, and I messed up. That was Monica Micklemore. I forgot. I said I sent it to all the panelists. I don't know why it had Dorothy Roberts' name on there. It's the response anyway goofiness all the way so that was not dorothy roberts that was monica micklemore who i'd already said her name she was on the panelist black female she's right here uh in seattle washington uh she does work with racism and health care i'd have to go and give you all her uh credentials and such she was on the flyer too anyway i'll read if we get any other uh responses from the panelists about that specific question i read the one that we got from last week i'll share any others and again this panel is in the archives you can hear and you can listen for the part where dorothy roberts makes this statement i think it's around around about the hour 20 minute mark or so maybe a little bit further along into it but it's definitely over the one hour period if given everybody had i think had a chance to talk at least one time at that point 
Any hoodles. Uh, glad that I got my response. Enjoyed and learned a lot from the panel. And folks can check it out if they like. Uh, let's see. Anything else? I think that will do for now. Number again. 605 313 The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Yikes, that is crazy. She has Black Lives Matter. Talking about Dr. McLemore. She has Black Lives Matter. You know, you can have like uh, tags, signatures on your email. I would not have that on my like work email professional like this is my career type thing I would not like wow I mean this isn't a you know agree or disagree you know with the stance type thing it's just I would not want anything political like you talk about that for neutralizing workplace racism I would not want anything you know political who I'm voting for anything like that uh, I mean hey that might be something where you can do that. That's encouraged. Uh, maybe they allow that specific type of phrasing, right? Because I see that in some professional settings. I think Starbucks and some companies will, you know, have Black Lives Matter, you know, certain days on cups or T-shirts or paraphernalia or whatever. I would not can do that on my time and share my views and what have you. But, oh, my goodness. this I mean, we talk about neutralizing workplace racism all the time it cannot especially if I work with other white people I just cannot imagine an environment if I work with one other white person really much less 10 20 50 I cannot imagine that I work with any number of white people and 3 4 5 if not all of them are racist and every time I send an email out now, I mean, certainly, they're going to be racist anyway. They're going to be racist anyway. I can't say that. No. They're going to be racist anyway, but ooh-wee. Now we're going to, okay, Black Lives Matter. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I can just see you talk about retaliate. That's just my view, VGQ, but that is something I've said for a long time. I know that was in vogue for a while, like people wearing buttons that said Black Lives Matter on their job if they you know were a waitress or a hostess or something of that nature or whatever other type of job that they had I've said that for years keep your politics on your so called free time and say that three or four times since this is election season no way man not what candidate you're voting for I wouldn't have no political signage or nothing up in your office because they do encourage that we've heard that from some people they wear certain certain uh, shirts or what have you certain unions will be associated with certain candidates or parties or whatever it is I would not as a non-white person you might be you know all eyes are going to be on you anyway on the plantation I would not want any other you know attacks attention from racists at all VGQ just my view uh, I'm sure other folks have done that and it works well for them. That would just be my view. Let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in, if they have observations, comments to share. Let's see.
Hello. Black female caller. Yes, ma'am. Hi, everyone. Hope everyone's having the best day they can have. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I guess I need, you know, some more compassion. I'm trying um, for the suicides. I mean, I don't, you don't want people to kill themselves. That's bad. But, you know, I, you have, you live in quote-unquote beautiful land. Not a lot of people around you. I guess I'm not your board. I don't, I don't, I don't know what your issue is. Um, about that, and I guess more compassion about the animals, you know, these albino animals, regular animals, you know, I'm not an animal abuser, of course, if you don't want one, just stay away from them, but I guess I need more compassion about that, um, the, the housing, yeah, that's always a problem, that's a problem everywhere, um, if you can't afford to get a home, I know we had the single black female in another location. She was, you know, trying to get a home. If you can get one, get one. So maybe you can grow your own, um, at least produce, you know. I'm not trying to tell people to become vegan, you know. That's up to you. No judgment either way because I still eat, I'm still eating meat. Um, but, you know, if you can grow your own produce and things like that, that would be better just in general for you and, you know, maybe share with your friends and stuff. So I'm all for that, um, if you can do that. Um, and with the, I guess the last thing, with the alcohol, um, that's not surprising in Colorado. They kind of let a lot of things go. And um, I wasn't able to participate yesterday work residents. I tried to hold on, but I had to get back to work, so... I just I just gonna have to get back to work. Um, but we were you know, we were a little busier this week than normal and someone said, you know, how are we getting through this? So someone said tequila and they you know, they thought that was funny and I felt bad because it was a black black man that said that but I'm just not a big fan of you know, alcohol or whatever to kinda of cope with work or you know, cope with your life and stuff. So I was like, Not over here, this and they laughed, and said, mm, there's no laughter over here. This That is not what is done in my house. I don't know what you're doing, but that is not done here. And then, you know, someone asked me, did I drink? I was like, no. You know, I just explained why, you know, that's just not my thing. You know, I never understood. You know, I had some by mistake with Nancy. I didn't like it. didn't want to be stupid, you know. I saw the commercials. This is my brain. Brain on drugs. I had no questions. No drugs. <laughs> so that was not a problem for me. And, you know, and to give, for the most, and they were very respectful. You know, some people go, oh, you don't drink, that's so corny. Everyone was very respectful. They was like, yeah, I can respect that, you know. And they told, you know, some of their, you know, drinking stories or whatever. And I, was, I didn't say anything because they're, they're stories and, you know, people are older, and, you know. For the most part, they seem to learn learn their lessons about, you know, excess indulging alcohol, so I left them alone. But, yeah, and then we end up talking about, why people like to talk about drugs a lot? We end up talking about marijuana one day, and then because we do, you know, we help people with their taxes, we're going to talk about how they do have a lot of, which is true, they have a lot of courses on marijuana and accounting because they they can't put their money in the bank and this, that, and the other. So we end up talking about that. Going back to work with people, 
And that was started by white people person. White people like to talk about drugs a lot, just in general, and indulge and take part. And like, ooh, fun. You know, I don't, when I have conversations with black people, that's just, I don't know, maybe I have talked to, I've always talked to weird black people. But, um, you know, smoking weed and things like that, they may have done it, but they don't do it around me, and that's not something that people bring up. Like maybe sometimes at church people say, well, I have a glass of wine, and they wait for somebody to judge them because they have a glass of wine. I'm just not, I don't have time for that. That's just not what I do, but, you know, you're at home, whatever. You know, drink away, I guess. I don't know. But, yeah. But white people in general, they do like to talk about and about alcohol and indulging and and, and draw other drugs and, you know, how to have good times. Because someone else brought up, oh, mushrooms. I'm, like, I'm just trying to get my work done, okay? I'm just waiting for the next person to help. But, <laughs> but um, that's it. That's all. And like I said, I don't really have anything workplace-related. We just were busy, and they gave us the opportunity to get some snacks. So I had to go, quote-unquote, shopping at work and get this box of snacks to eat. Much obliged uh, black female caller says she is not uh, feeling sorry for the depressed white people in Wyoming. They got property and houses and great scenery and it's rural, not crammed in, tight space with lots of people and fighting traffic to get around. Like, what's, what's the problem? No niggers to complain about? What's the problem? Get your act together. Turn those guns in. You don't even, real talk, who are you going to shoot in Wyoming? I can see if you, you know, safety, deer, bears going to come and cut a fool. Like, oh, okay, okay, we got it. But no, 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 no. You got that AR-15. Who was that? What what, what exactly are you planning for? Mm-hmm. Anyway, she said, uh, the folks at work to now see that's what I've observed too they do a lot of that talking about drinking on the job and that's one where love it I would love it have a reputation you know Gus old teetotaler you know every month it's dry March dry April dry October you know Gus and you don't even have to ask he got water another water oh he's really tripping today he got lemon water today that yep 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 that's me every day yep that's me that is the egg exact reputation I would want I'm not going out for happy hour tequila and even if I did I would not promote like the uh, comment that she said the victim made on her job kind of publicly I guess talking about you know get some tequila whatever after all this and even if that's the case you can get a glass of wine or whatever I would not publicize the same way I'm not publicizing Black Lives Matter and all that I'm not publicizing drinking habits, any other uh, narcotic consumption. That's the sort of thing that they will then, you know, old Leroy, you know, he probably got a bottle of Hennessy hidden out in his pocket or his slip out for his lunch break. He was telling us he was going home, couldn't even wait to get in the bottle of tequila. They'll bring that up when it's promotion time. And or I do not want the reputation as the fun time Negro. Oh, we got to bring old Leroy. We can't have happy hour without Leroy. We can't have the 
Christmas shindig without old Leroy. Nah, nah, nah. And like I said, the optics. Even if I worked with other non-white people, I would not be, you know, blaring that out in front of everyone. Oh, yeah, I got my, you know, great goose just waiting for me. And ooh-wee, I'm not. Just keep that to yourself. Um, and what a great observation. I said, that's another thing you can do at work. Study what it means to be white. She said, dang. These white people talk about narcotics a lot. Mushrooms, cannabis, alcohol. And just, <laughs> what in the world? Just noting that, like, dang, it doesn't seem the non-wife you like they don't do that sort of thing I'm not saying that they're all prudes maybe they do they just don't seem to come in and be wow I can't wait got my shrooms and I'm good what <laughs> what come on, Lauren she the, the dude the white fella right here that just crashed that plane that's what he was doing my friend died sad grieving get me a few of these shrooms help me and then hopped on the plane and tried to kill everybody what does it mean to be white I will say Dr. Layla African he did say white people are chemical people all the time just drugs and drugs and drugs and narcotics and caffeine and look at sugar even and just all the time other folks who dialed in with commentary may I be Lauren there would be Lauren yes ma'am yes sir Um, evening everyone thank you for allowing me to speak um, the first thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the white woman, Dara Doherty in St. Louis. She's um, um, making people pay to live in abandoned or uh, condemned housing. And the question was asked, is it something shady or unlawful about uh, what she was doing? The, the shady part is what stood out to me. Um, and then uh, they started talking to what sounded like a white man. And he was describing the people who lived in these places uh, in his residence. And I thought it was super unusual that the lady doing the interview actually made it a point to say that this white man was not a NIMBY. I think that was said twice. And it was assumed that the listeners knew what NIMBY was. It stands for Not My Backyard. Um, but that acronym was never explained. Um, kind of made me think about uh, lynching and the Negro and Brazilian soccer. But... He started describing what I pictured as a black male, even though he didn't say it. And he said, you know, he would wake up every day at dawn, work all day, and come back in the evening. And they also used the word, they said they chose to live in condemned housing uh, versus being homeless. And I'm just, I'm not sure that's the best word, but I'm not sure what is a better word. So I'll have to think about that. Um, and they, she also asked him the question, you know, uh, did did um, did he think that the lady, Dora Doherty, was doing this out of goodwill? And he said, no, it was clear she was running a criminal operation. And I just, 
men. That that whole thing was uh, it was pretty fascinating. And when I looked at that, um, I found that article in the Riverfront Times. It also talked about what I assume was a white man. His name was Keith Mack. It said he was a real estate investor, and um, give me a second, and that he had fathered three daughters with the white woman who they put the charges on as Doherty, okay? And he said, I'm being railroaded by the city. And he also said, I've never scammed anybody. I never will scam anybody. I was raised Beaver Cleaver. So whatever that means, that's pretty interesting. Um, and then they had the segment where they were talking about the cemeteries, but they started off talking about African-American grave robbers. I'm not really sure why, because um, it really just seems to be about cemeteries that were not being maintained properly. And it said that they had signed away almost five acres of the cemetery for development. That word uh, stood out to me. I just talked to a non-white lady about that word. She used the word... Um, I think she said developing nations or developing countries. This is an all-white lady who teaches at a university, you know, and I asked her about what that word meant, and um, we had a little, uh, just a little bit talking. It was agreed upon that it meant to make things the way white people want them to be, uh, development or developing. Um, and they were talking about the last name, and, you know, a grandmother, a mother, and they said the last name was Fuller. It made me think of... Uh, Neely Fuller, and they also, I'm not sure if I misheard this part, but I think I heard them say that there was an existing law banning integration of the cemetery, so it made me think they didn't want uh, white people and non-white people to be buried together, but I could have misheard that. But it said most of the headstones are split or crumbling. One uh, grave was damaged so badly that the casket was actually exposed to the rain, and then I heard what sounded like a non-white black female, she said, literally, you can see a femur bone in there. And I thought, you know, that's just terrible. And also, the 91-year-old who comes by every day to, you know, see where his family is buried and trying to make things better, you know, I guess it's constructive that, you know, he's trying to clean things up around their grave site. But I was just thinking about how bad it would be to be going to the... um the cemetery every day, but I guess that's maybe you do things like that when you get older. Um, Vermont, when they were talking about John Harrison, uh, um, I guess that would be Darkie Corner, what they were talking about, and the the black male's name was John Harrison. I did also notice that they said he was adopted. Um, let me see. And also the white lady said, in my mind, I had this image of a man being burned in his own home. If that had happened, I just think it would be evidence that he was not a man and that was not his home. Um, let me see. Also, it said in mid-adolescence, he started doing local work for his upkeep. And that also, that made me think of Dorothy Roberts, non-white children being used as labor income by white people. Um, the white women in that book, you know, they're using those children as income. You know, they're at least, you know, $400 per month they're getting from each child. Well, the I think the first three. Um, I don't know. So I guess that's uh, been going on for a really long time because this happened in the 1880s, I think. Um let me see. Uh, the ambulance. 
video, um, what stood out to me was a statement. You know, AMR does not tolerate racism or discrimination of any kind. Um, our organization condemns hate speech of any of in any and all forms. White people make the same sorts of statements. Like every we hear this program, you know, every week, and it doesn't matter whether it's like a school or a corporation. I don't know, random white person. Every time they get caught practicing racism, they make the same sorts of statements. Oh, we don't tolerate racism or, you know, the same things. It's obviously not true. Um, the sunglass hut segment where they use facial recognition to arrest what I think they said was a black grandfather and he goes to jail. He's beaten, sexually assaulted, raped while he was falsely imprisoned. Wow. Um, I, that, that whole thing seemed terrible. Um, the albino affairs segment, um, the northern white rhino. I actually saw that, uh, I don't know, I guess it was a couple of days ago, but I saw it, um, I don't know, maybe it was NPR, but those rhinos, they're not even white. Um, you know, they're regular colored rhinos. It comes from, there's some confusion about the, where the name came from, but the story goes, uh, there were Dutch, uh, I think they called them colonists there, um, white supremacists, and they had a word because their mouth is Square, okay, so they had a Dutch word that meant wide, and it was, uh, I think it's spelled W-I-J-D-E or W-J-D, I don't know, there was alternate spellings, but the white people from England, or the British white people, thought they were saying white when they said the word in um, their language, so these rhinos are not white, but they're just called white rhinos and just being called a white rhino will get you better treatment um it will make white people look out for you so i think you know that's super interesting um i was pretty tired yesterday so i didn't participate in uh, neutralizing workplace racism but i so a couple of months ago um i how do i i took this i guess i i got an opportunity to take a class right and it was free. I was like, okay, I can learn how to do taxes for free. This sounds cool. It was not, okay? It was a super long, boring class. And, you know, I, I didn't even, after like maybe the first week or two, I didn't want to go anymore. But I didn't want to be a quitter, so I went ahead and completed the class. And I was, you know, really happy when this class was over, you know? And I was just wanted to be done with it. And they didn't really teach me how to do taxes, you know? I didn't learn as much as I wanted to. I was pretty dissatisfied with it. And um, then they invited me back to take another class. I did not want to do it, but somehow, you know, I just felt like really pressured into it. Long story short, the the company that's teaching this tax class, they took people from the tax class who they thought would do well and then hired them, okay? And, you know, they had us take these courses ahead of time, you know, while we were doing the class before the so-called employment started. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, you know, if, if I got a job, you know, some extra income would be nice. So I, you know, maybe that's why I did it. And so I ended up getting a job. I'm working for these people, okay? And, and I had to do all of these classes before the employment even started. And it was like, I don't know, 18, 12 hours worth of stuff. It was really time consuming, okay? And when I was doing it, I was like, these people are taking advantage of me. This is, you know, they should be paying me to do this because this is basically work training, but I hadn't been hired yet, right? So they were pretty slick about it. And then 
after I got hired, they were like, oh, you know, some of those classes aren't showing up as done in the computer and you need to do them again. And I was like, that's fine. You know, I will do it next time I come to work. Um, they expected me to do this again on my own time. Okay. I didn't, I didn't even do it and I didn't talk about it. I said I would do it next time I came to work. So, you know, I went to work, signed in, you know, started doing the e-courses or whatever. The white people are pissed. They're like, you know, why didn't you do this on your own time? Blah, 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 blah. They just wanted me to like be working for free. And um, I'm like, no, I don't, you know, I don't think I should be doing that stuff on my own time. <laughs> um, and and the lady was like, well, this isn't work. And I was like, well, I think it is work. You know, you guys are asking me to do it. This isn't my idea. Long story short, a lot of disagreement about me not being willing to work for free. I don't think I work at the place anymore. It's been a lot. I guess it would have been a longer story if I told it on a neutralizing workplace racism. I just thought I'd share it. But all the other non-white people, they, well, I think they're just in a more, mm, maybe the uh, more dependent on the income from the job. And they're just doing it. And they're just, you know, mistreating people. That's wage theft. You know, having people work off the clock. And super incorrect. And I wanted to share it. Uh, that's all I have right now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Black self-respect. Dang, black female caller uh, in Georgia. She said she couldn't participate yesterday because she was literally at work. I come on the clock. Got to roll. Can't mess around with y'all. Now, Lawrence is eh, tired. They terrorized me this week. I can't stay awake messing around with y'all. Dang. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, Fridays, neutralizing workplace racism where we frequently talk and hear about time theft wow that kind that in so many ways where if you do the work during work hours and then they don't count that and don't pay you or they find all these creative ways do this work once you go home at night yes get on the laptop and there you go like come on come on what I would say for anyone, if you are working a second job, this is not, you know, dire. I'm going to starve and, you know, be like Devante in the book we're reading on the book club. I got to break out the window and beg the neighbors for a sandwich or a cracker if they got one. Uh, counter racist code. I'm going to experiment with my counter racist code in the workplace and study learn how racism white supremacy operates I don't have to be subjected to a lot of abuse this is not something where I'm really really dependent and going to tolerate just any sort of mistreatment so that I get this paycheck you can do exactly what she did right there now we're just going through the employment process anything that would come up as what people call red flags these are major problems where they're violating policy and procedure wage theft any major acts of racism, whatever you, uh, sexual misconduct, whatever you, you know, would deem as, whoa, if this is how you're cutting up on the first day of me being on the job, this is not for me. You got to do this work when you're not on the clock. And this is like a major conflict 
because you are unwilling to do this work when you are not at work that right there like uh oh this is going to be a problem especially because she already said they kind of pressured me about this like uh oh (laughs) now am I going to be pressured to work when I'm not being compensated on a regular basis May and she said it seemed like there were a lot of other workers maybe in a more vulnerable situation if you're one of those folks in St. Louis you got to pay rent Dara Doherty stay in a condemned property I'm going to have to shut my mouth and you know do this work off the clock I don't know if they even got Wi-Fi service I don't even know if they got electricity at Doherty's condemned property but you know I'm going to get this work done off the clock and then just hope for the best system of white supremacy racism I would talk to your children about that because that is so common them trying to pressure you use words aggressively get you to work when you are not on the clock so they don't have to pay you for it and then they'll even try and find creative ways to blame you they say well hey it looks like you didn't complete these training components you'll have to do them again not that there's a flaw with our system or we'll figure it out we don't want you wasting time and blah 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 oh no no maybe you did something slack you'll have to do it again on your own time of course Anywho, uh, I, I too noted in the segment where they were talking about the uh, Dora Darty, her shady operation. That could have been the same words that they were using in Vermont. Why is this on the deed shady corner? Maybe it was because they had a litany. They said nigger corner and darky corner darky bridge maybe the shady bridge <laughs> maybe they did why is shade that's why I don't use that uh, phrasing uh, throwing shade because it's always the same thing always something shade is blocking the light your shadow is normally dark in color anything that is heading towards dark away from white is something bad a problem to be avoided something vile Shady, throwing shade. Much obliged, Lauren. Other folks who dialed in. Oh, my! Make sure I get uh, one point of what shall I say? Uh, Clarification. When they talked about the cemeteries in Broward County, the section that I used as a preface was talking about Dana Ramey Berry's the price for their pound of flesh and within that she talks about the desecration of black burial sites which includes grave robbing that was all her segment and I just included that because that is a long part of that history of the desecration of black burial sites but they were not talking about the African American grave robbers uh, in Broward County that was all related to Dana Ramey Barry's scholarship but I think that's why I included it I think all of that is relevant uh, that that would have been a gold mine and hey how do we know maybe 
for folks who rob graves. That is lucrative business even to this day. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, if we missed anyone, uh, number again, 605 313 the code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. See any folks that we missed commentary. Grant will give folks second. See if they have any other observations, questions to add. Uh, that segment about Harvey Eugene Murphy Jr., privileged black male, black grandfather, uh, who was arrested based on facial recogni- uh, recognition technology, I did not grasp immediately that there was a rape in this. I just what they saw and he stole and threw him in jail blah 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 and all that it was like the audio was rolling it said he was raped in jail I was like, what did they say rape and I, even when they said it the first time it it staggered me so I was like did they say he was raped they didn't say that because this is a 61 year old grandpa like they didn't that's not what they said and they're getting like no no they said he was raped and in fact <sighs> So I had to go even to try to get additional details. I guess I was resist. Man, sometimes you're resistant to believing things because you would like them not to be so. Vice News reported on this as well. Man, and they even that this is not a man, but man jailed, raped and beaten after false facial recognition match. $10 million lawsuit alleges I'm skipping down midway through the report at the time of the robbery Murphy was in Sacramento California he didn't find out about the robbery or that he'd been blamed for it until he went to the DMV to renew his driver's license he was arrested and held without bond despite sending his court appointed lawyer the evidence that exonerated him he still spent hours in jail a few hours before Murphy was to be released from jail he was followed into the bathroom by three violent criminals the lawsuit said he was beaten forced on the ground and brutally gang raped that is not quite the same as raped which I even struggled to process gang raped a 61 year old black grandfather after the violent attack one of the criminals held a shank against his neck and told him that if he reported the rape to anyone he would be murdered Murphy crawled to his bunk and faced the wall, praying these men would not attack him again. Black male privilege? 
Anyway, uh, that's the sort of thing. It's lots because I mentioned Abner Louima beginning of the week. We were talking about the politics of white violence. But I mentioned Abner Louima and the white officer who sodomized him anally with a plunger and then paraded the used plunger around the prison precinct like a trophy, like he had just won the Super Bowl. I just talked about that. That's the sort of thing I would ask. I suspect Dr. Tommy J. Curry would say, eh, keep that in mind when people say males can't be raped. Black males are not that va- are rape victims. Hmm. Hmm. Rethinking Rufus, delectable Negro, the man not. Dr. Rebecca J. Frazier, she even included, gave us some additional scholarship on this very subject matter this week. All of that also connected to that facial uh, recognition technology, which so much scholarship about how there are lots of errors, especially for darker faces and false positives and all the rest of it all of this and this sort of technology you're going to be used to have us gang raped it whoops my bad my bad let's see uh caller at the courthouse in florida should be with us as well uh, other folks if you have commentary proceed Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I guess I thought about that, uh, that time period where the victim of racism, the, uh, the black male pastor, I think I did hear them mention like the 1890, and then it just reminded me of the time period that I hear uh, some black people come in and mention in our ancient record. Uh, and I just like that aspect of asking questions about, you know, how they or why they name certain highways or streets or bridges and the uh, I guess that was a white person that was providing the information on uh, you know why uh, something was named that way and I think she said it was a slur or something Um, and it's just just for that example among it, it could be like hundreds or thousands of examples of how racism is involved with the naming of different things. Um, there was a, a segment where I think they were talking about Nikki Haley and uh, Donald Trump and the, the the words that were being used, I guess it, it may have been connected to some kind of a study or research or something about women they were saying women and i know like how they 
uh, white supremacists, like they use the term women to really mean white women and cause confusion. And I and I heard they use the term suburb or suburban women. And I'm like, okay, first they were saying independent women or Republican women, Democrat, and then they slipped or added that word suburban women. Uh, and it, it sounded like that was another cold word for um, white women. Uh, and, and with the albino affairs segment where they were mentioning rhinos, it, it made me think about there was an acronym used, I heard, in the uh, in the news reports this week connected to Trump. He called someone a rhino, but it, it wasn't R-H-I-N-O. It's R-I-N-O. And, it, and it, uh, I looked it up, and it says it stands for Republican in name only, used to describe Republicans who are against Donald Trump and the big lie including the ones who impeached him. That's somebody put that definition. So I'm like, man, that's a, a term he's been calling people rhino. Um, but other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged caller in Florida uh, with the Trump segment and talking, focusing on uh, female voters specifically. I too noted the terminology one we just talked to dr frazier about that this week woman is synonymous with white woman and she was in the uk so that's really around the world but they they didn't say white woman they started like she said independent women and then they said suburban women now that who lives in the suburbs who did they even create the suburbs for are you not allowed to say white women? Can you just say that? Like, oh man, those white women voters look like they are still rolling hard for Donald Trump. Yes, just like in 2016 and just like in 2020. Uh, the questions, that's a he works down in the archive department asking questions. That's why I said I would love it to work down there because they probably got lots of stuff that really everywhere in the D because they talked about that. Some of that uh, darky bridge and darky corn and all that stuff. It was in the deeds. It was in the property and showing the lines of demarcation for the town, which would just for me further in uh, entrenched that this did happen, that uh, Minister Harrison lived there and that these white people probably did kill him burn the house down and all of that that they knew and talked about all of this and then like I said the politics of white violence we celebrate commemorate that this happened much less punish anybody we commemorate this and put this on the map nigger bridge nigger corn and just that alone it is staggering the number of those types of spots that are on uh, like these will be official maps you know in the atlas for the town or the county or whatever it is uh, and or in the property deed Negra Dam lynching corner I mean this is in we had uh, Dr. Ann Patel Gray as a guest on the program in 2011 she's in Australia she put the map in her book bam 
of the continent slash country so-called of Australia with the number of spots that are nigger this and nigger this and nigger river and nigger this and you, you couldn't just call it koala something y'all got all the cute kangaroos and koala bears and all that you could have put cute cuddly man nah, nah. down under even there nigger bridge coon falls nigger hill I think that was on the map specifically nigger hill and then sometimes it'll be nigger hill too because they lynched a bunch of dark people there that sort of thing any hoodles uh I have heard that acronym before Republican in name only Rhino I have heard that I even have to have to ponder I'm like why because he's so good at name calling like hmm why would he pick Rhino for now now, I do even I guess the GOP they're elephants so I guess maybe that means something right elephants are substantially larger generally speaking than a rhinoceros Rhino Republican, but I would have to, I would have to think on that. Hmm. R I N O Republican and name only. Hmm. That old Don. Anyway, other folks, uh, any other commentary they want to make sure they get in before we wrap up? Everyone satisfied? Can I say something right there? Uh, I think that's Lauren. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it's Lauren. Um, so the person he called a rhino, I can't think of his name, but he was, he is a black man. Okay. Rhinos are from Africa. And I, I heard this on the news. I think the black male even said Donald Trump calling him a rhino was like calling him a nigger. Um, that's all I have. Dang. Uh Oh, let's see. Is this it? Let's see. Who has he been calling? Says, okay. I don't need any advice from Rhino. Kaylee McKinney. Jeez. Is Kaylee McKinney, is this a white person or a non-white person? Let's see. Oh, this is, looks like a white woman. Okay, so he must name call a lot of folks with this one. We'll see if we can find the uh, non-white person that he was passionate with this week. If it got to something being racist, like, oh, wow. Uh, let's see. Any other commentary folks want to make sure they get in before we wrap things up? Funny. He's been doing this for a long time, I guess, picking out people to call, uh, I guess he even called Nikki Haley a rhino at some point. Like, dang, dang, might name call his way all the way back to the uh, White House. How about that one? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I have to do a little searching. We will probably be back. Uh, probably early in the week I'm just hopeful we will not be on tomorrow so I can kind of take a few breaths process and then we can move forward but I think we will have that reschedule will be on the program uh, sometime this coming week and then we should even have some folks visiting from 
the continent, even I think we'll get that subject matter about the rape of black people, including black males, under the system of white supremacy should be coming up for Black History Month. So lots as we uh, move into 2024 official. Uh, we didn't miss anybody. Everybody got everything they needed to share. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Save that brain computer that, especially in the workplace, be known. Yes, I am a teetotaler. Dry January, dry December, all same thing. Drinking water over here and plenty of it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring just because I don't think tons of us heard about the privileged black male Harvey Eugene Murphy Jr. 61 year old black grandfather I just want to make sure I include that one paragraph of detail one more time. A few hours before Murphy was to be released from jail, greater confinement, he was followed into the bathroom by three violent criminals. They could have been classified as white too, but whatever. The lawsuit said he was beaten, forced on the ground, and brutally gang-raped. After this violent attack, one of the criminals held a shank against his neck and told him that if he reported the rape to anyone, he would be murdered. Murphy crawled to his bunk and faced the wall, praying these men would not attack him again. Black Male Privilege 2025 No idea what sort of impact this has on your grandchildren Cow signing out Thanks all for tuning in Nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim brother You're a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.